and welcome to episode three of Miniatures Monthly, the Crank and Crowbar's spin-off podcast about tiny plastic people and also spaceships and also goblins sometimes and so the on. The three best things in life. <laughs> the three best things in life. My name is Chris Thurston and today I'm joined by Tom Senior. Hello. As ever. It's just us two, Tom, talking about goblins. No one else will talk to us about goblins, Chris. <laughs> exactly. Um, so in this month's goblin news, well, we thought we might end up, you know, going all the way through April, getting to this, you know, latest episode of the podcast without having like a big news last, you know, last month when we introduced the news section, there was an agree of like, wow, there's so much to talk about. Hmm. We almost got there this time without a huge announcement. Came very close. Hour within hours. Yeah. In fact. And then, uh, yesterday, um, Games Workshop sort of formally in- unveiled, not the, well, I mean, formally announced with some details the next edition of Warhammer 40,000, which has been rumoured for a long time because um, obviously the the success of Age of Sigmar, despite the initial furore about the, the death of the old world and the end of old Warhammer fantasy battle. And square bases. And square bases. Um, you know, it led to the assumption that, you know, even though, you know, Age of Sigmar has been a huge success, um, you know, there's been this sort of sense of like well where does warhammer 40k go next mm-hmm. um as the game that has as we've spoken about on the podcast before an extremely cumbersome rule set at this point that has been sort of twisted into shape that you know to the point where it's probably impossible for one person to even know all of the rules for <laughs> warhammer 40,000 as it currently stands mm-hmm. um and there's been assumption that it would be you know that it'll be overhauled and simplified um if not totally you know turned into aos and this is the first suggestion that that is at least somewhat the direction they're moving in. Yeah, they've, well, they've certainly led with the three ways to play idea. So the, this notion that um, it can be just a purely narrative thing as well as, you know, quite a hardcore simulator, sort of sim, simmy tabletop war game. Mm. So it, it just simply, you know, branching out into both of those areas at the same time is is, is encouraging. Um, I'm not sure what they've specifically said yet that makes people think that it is going to be uh, they've said it's going to be faster, which is yeah. certainly a good thing. And uh, but from there, like, do you extrapolate that hopefully they're going to have a more focused series of book releases rather than just having cross-referencing lots of different rule sets? So, so the things they've said so far that echo AOS, and actually probably the way to think about it is they don't echo AOS exactly. What no. they echo is post General's Handbook, Age of Sigma, yeah, which was last year's kind of big. Um, it was the point where Age of Sigma really came into its own as a game because when it gained a point system, which had been sort of experimentally removed, um, which was a decision that didn't really work, um, and also gained some better structure for competitive play. It feels like that's the point that they're going to pitch the new 40k at. Yeah. Not all the way back to kind of the mad days of Age of Sigma where it's like if you're wearing a hoodie, re-roll all ones or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, they've uh, on the new website they've put up, they do say or just flat out there's going to be points. So that structure is going to be in place from the very beginning. Um, but, uh, you know... The idea of a more fast, fluid, and easy to understand 40k is amazing, especially because the universe is really fantastic. Like, yeah. I love the 40k universe, and I now love the 30k universe, and really well into this now. So this is an interesting thing, because they've said explicitly that the, the universe isn't blowing up. That yeah. um, Gathering Storm, which was the event that just sort of concluded, um, which saw the return of Rowboat uh, Gillimot, mm. Primark of the Ultramarines. Yep. Um, as, that's perfectly pronounced there as well. Thanks. Um, and... Um, um, that that was, you know, that, that's a precursor to the events of this game, but it's not going to be a hard changeover between the two. It's more like this is a new chapter in the same, in yeah. the same story, in the same setting, which makes a lot of sense. Hmm. In terms of the things they definitely said are, the things that seem definitely similar to AOS. One is that all the rules will be free. So the basic rules will be free. 
it will be supported by they said something like like more affordable books which brings to mind the aos battle tome system mm. to me and that um and then i think at adepticon they mentioned things about it having like a morale system and varying movement speeds for different units and things yeah. which is very much the same as aos um one thing this does adhere to is is this rumor that was going around that the way those games would shake out this year would be the aos would be the most straightforward game uh, Warhammer 40k would be in the middle hmm. and then the Horus Heresy stuff 30k would be for the hardcore oh uh, yeah and that is borne out by the fact that they've actually said that for the time being the Horus Heresy stuff that Forge World do will still use the current edition 7th edition Warhammer 40,000 rules hmm. um, and that might be because um, you know everyone I've spoken to has said that uh, just the confines of the Horus Heresy army books is actually quite well balanced and quite well honed for that particular period and the units are quite well matched against each other. And, you know, because naturally it's Space Marines versus Space Marines. It fits a little bit better. It doesn't have the kind of mad outlier things that happen when you ally Eldar with Tau and mm. do all this other stuff. So it sounds like that's the kind of the way it's going to shake out. And that's a pretty pleasing cross-section of things. Yeah. The, um, so what else was interesting? So there's, so one of the questions that I've seen going around the, in the 40k community for a long time was, um, when they, you know, when they did Age of Sigmar, they broke down the traditional fantasy races into grand alliances. And that's kind of not that difficult to do in fantasy. Mm. We have order, chaos, destruction, and death. It's a lot harder to do in 40k. Yeah, it's interesting looking at their website, because I was thinking about grand alliances as well. Mm. And they've broadly separated them into uh, space marines, chaos, and xenos. It's, yeah, it's imperium. Yeah, so imperium. Yeah. So um, astro militarum and stuff are still in, and uh, mechanicum are still in They're in the imperium. imperium. Yeah, that, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. So that, that's that umbrella. Um, but Xenos is like Eldar and Orcs and Tau, who are just like vastly different. And Tyranids. And Tyranids, yeah. yeah. Just, inc- just totally different. So I, I don't know whether that's just the way the website's designed. It's very, you know, it's very tempting to extrapolate a bit too much when there's not mm. much information around. Um, I can't see them really going that direction. Like, is having a Xenos Grand Alliance? I mean, I, I doubt they'll be framed as Grand Alliances. Yeah. I think that's probably the way it's, because I mean, the phrase Grand Alliance kind of implies <laughs> yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. It's not um, whereas I think it's more likely to be that, um, that's how they're categorized. And I mean, I would be amazed if it didn't inherit Age of Sigmar's keyword system because it's so elegant to be able to say, yeah. you have a chaos army. Okay, cool. If all of your chaos units have the corn keyword, then you have a corn army. Yeah. But if any of them don't, then you don't. Mm. And that kind of thing. And that's such an elegant way for them to be able to patch the game on the fly. I've happened this month actually with um, Age of Sigmar where uh, there are two um, chaos big monsters that were kind of left in the wilderness, uh, the Mutalith Vortex brute, uh, Beast and the Slaughter Brute, which are both made from the same kit. Slaughter Brute is a big kind of cornate, hulking, uh, murder asshole. Hmm. And the Mutalist, Mutalith Vortex Beast, which is hard to say, um, is, looks very zinchy and it has like sort of tentacle maw and a huge swirling portal on its back. And because neither of those had the right keywords, they were kind of unusable because you couldn't put one in your zinch army without breaking the zinch allegiance, which is so important to a zinch army, hmm. which is something that applies to me because I was, it, I love that model. And then this month they just went, nope, we just reissued the War Scrolls. They have the right keywords now. So, uh, Salty Brutes have the, um, corn keyword and, and Mutaliths have the Zinch keyword. Yeah. Fantastic. And that's all it took. Mm. It didn't take a new edition or a new release of the model or a new book. It just took, we'll put out a new PDF mm. on the website and through the app and it's done. And I'd be, I'd be amazed if they didn't seek that kind of flexibility in 40k going forward, where it's like, technically you could put, because they say they'll have open play like iOS where you can use any models you want. So if you want to put your Tyranids down with your Tau, fine. Mm. But I would be amazed if there weren't bonuses that you really want having yeah. an all Tyranid aligned force. 
you know, and that gives you some freedom to put in, for example, gene stealer cults, because they will probably also have the Tyranid keyword. Mm. But you're not going to be like, oh, that alliance of Necrons and Tyranid. It's <laughs> really fucking fuck. weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's really exciting. There's been a few, there's a few little things you can intuit from that website. Mm. Um, one, which is something I'm really pleased about is that it looks like, um, all of the kind of Mechanicus forces are being consolidated into one army because there is one entry for Cult Mechanicus. Yeah. That explicitly mentions Skitarii. Good. So, which is as it should be. Yeah. The fact that they were separate armies was Just weird. A kind of, uh, freak occurrence of releasing those ranges at different times and not necessarily binding them together. Uh, I, I think as long as they make a faster game and, uh, require me to own fewer books, then I'm very excited about playing 40,000. Yeah. There's a really interesting line in the, in the FAQ they released of sort of like what's happening. Hmm. Um, where one of the, one of the frequently asked questions was, can I trust you? <laughs> Which is very, you know, it's, it's, it's a pointedly honest thing for mm. Games Workshop to point out that people ask. Um, and the answer they say, of course you can. This is the new Games Workshop TM. <laughs> yeah. And it's sort of interesting for even Games Workshop to be calling themselves that, that there's almost an explicit acknowledgement that, that company has done by all accounts quite an amazing U-turn and it's how it treats its customers and, where things are priced at and how accessible its games are in the space of about 18 months or so since the release of Age of Sigmar, which was wobbly. Hmm. But like now I feel like I feel comfortably excited because I think AOS puts a good precedent for them kind of getting this right, that there'll be a certain amount of investment I can make that isn't going to be completely challenged by, I mean, admittedly they've had to say in the same FAQ, look, you know, the codexes you've been buying that they've been releasing up until relatively recently, the rules in those books will no longer apply. The fluff will. Which is a big difference, but like yeah. big difference from Warhammer Fantasy, I guess. They're going to stop selling them, they said, in fact, like almost immediately. Yeah. This old codex is going to be, you know, off, uh, which is interesting. Um, well, but, you know, that's how games work. <laughs> well, everyone understands editions and the idea that, you know, the rules change. Yeah. And uh, the the edition crossover is the point where you expect all the rules to change, really. And you, I, like I bought, I bought two, two Stormcast um, books now, mm. and the old one is kind of a little bit irrelevant. And I don't mind that because I understand that that's what I'm buying into. I think maybe it's just having that predictable rhythm and understanding what you're investing in yeah. is really, really important. Most of this is a point we'll come back to, but like, so in the last month, like even though based on my current hobby queue, actually working on my corn is a little way away. Like I've got a lot of stuff I'd like to get to first, mm. but I picked up Blades of Corn when it came out, which is a new corn book because, uh, you know, a bit like I bought the new Stormcast book, even though that's only a kind of passing interest because the investment isn't, I mean, it's, it's, they're, they're 25 pound books, so they're not cheap. And they're sort of like big magazine length, but very nicely produced. Yeah. Sort of, you know, not me- mega long, but kind of nice to have. And because they come out at a rate of one that I'm interested in every one or two months, that investment just in a book, um, I quite enjoy as a way to keep abreast of the story and keep on top of the hobby generally that doesn't, um, it doesn't break the bank in the sense that I don't feel like I have to own it. And also I'm not buying 200 quid worth of models with each new book. It's just like, hmm. If there was, honestly, if there was a subscription service, like with White Dwarf or with anything else, where it was like, you pay a hundred quid a year or something and you get the battle terms as they come out, mm, I would yeah. totally subscribe to that. Yeah, Whatever they decide way. to price it at, some discount. But you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. cause I almost treat it as like, all of the books advance the story in some way or kind of flesh out the world in some way. So it's just like this month in Age of Sigma, I'm reading about skulls. Mm. And that's kind of the way it flows, which is. Yeah. I wish more of Black Library stuff, um, was like that. Obviously the terms are a bit different, but, um, it's, the Black Library stuff is very, very expensive, I find. Mm. Um, and one of the things I've really enjoyed recently was being able to pick up, pick up loads of Horus Heresy fiction 
for fifteen dollars as part of a humble bundle. I did the same thing, yeah. Uh, so I, I just got everything that was the, the top tier. Just just give me everything, and that includes like audio dramas that are thirty pounds each. Jesus, uh, yeah, and they're just so expensive. And it's like, wow, if I, uh, th- there's no wonder I've never gotten into this stuff before because it's like the price barrier for me is it's prohibitive. Yeah. yeah, like what they need is Breeders Digest. Basically, they need like, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like yeah. a subscription service where like someone will send you a story about orcs once a month. <laughs> uh, you know, that's that's what I need in my life. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Black Library does do subscription services and they do stuff like uh, audio drama weeks where you, right. but, but they're quite very expensive and audio dramas are expensive to produce. And it's obviously part of the, you know, creating those. Um, but I think there's a lot to be said for um, books and audio dramas as a gateway drug into the fiction. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's certainly happened for me with 30 K mm. this month where I've just read, I've read, I'm on the fourth book already. Cause I just inhale those things and yeah. just really enjoy the story. Yeah, we should come back to that as well. Cause I mean, that's been my month as well. Yeah. We'll come back to the one, yeah. uh, month um, review. The other thing I want to, so t- in terms of, so, I mean, people getting over the codex as being invalid. That's, mm. that's a thing. So the, um, the interesting thing though, that might be a little bit harder for some people to swallow is, um, a few of the leaked pictures that came with the announcement. So there is a new Warhammer40,000.com website and obviously announced a new edition. And on that website, there are a few pictures that possibly gave away a little bit more than they were expecting them to give away. Um, of, you know, I think one of them is a per- otherwise perfectly innocent picture of somebody sat in a games workshop store at a desk, happily painting a space marine to illustrate. Yeah. I think it's only on the, it was, it was only on the website to illustrate like hobby. Yeah. It's great. But the space marine that he's painting is pointedly not a space marine that currently exists in the range. <laughs> and it is what is called a true scale space marine, um, which is something I think there's been a sort of hobby community around building true scale space marines for a while, which is the notion that, um, you know, Games Workshop's sense of scale, what it means to be a 28 millimeter miniature scale has been flexible over the years, which you can see if you compare something like, like, um, I've got one over there, a corn bloodbound slaughter priest to like a space marine. Yeah. That means the slaughter priest is like 12 foot tall, given mm. that they're technically the same scale. Like, age of Sigma models tend to be a lot bigger. Um, space Marines are supposed to be like eight foot tall super soldiers, and they're not that much bigger than Imperial Guard. They're bulkier, but they're not that much taller. Mm. And also, their proportions are not cartoonish, but they've got big heads and big shoulder pads, and almost like squat little bodies, like pun not intended. Mm. And so what this really looks like is that they're going to do a new space marine like a new fundamental space marine model yeah towards true scale proportions where i imagine those models will be bigger just because you know i'd be amazed if they weren't stormcast size basically yeah yeah um but this is obviously i think it's super exciting because um that's one of the things that's really struck me over the last month of painting the of heresy is the proportions feel a bit different to aos like the kind of way they fit next to each other feels a little bit yeah sort of chunky and toyish in some ways very very strange so uh, i've been assembling uh some custodes who are just the ultimate kind of bodyguards of the emperor yeah and they actually kind of are true scale i mean they're they're, they're slightly ridiculous like i don't i'm not a huge fan of those models actually they're massive uh, they're just enormous um but you put one of those next to a normal space wing next to a sister of silence and it looks absurd <laughs> like it just looks ridiculous it's, it's like the proportions uh it's not so much just they're all different sizes, is the proportions are different from one type of yeah. person to another in a really strange and unnatural way. Like the li- length of their limbs and so on. Yeah, you can even see it with models that will obviously be intended to be relevant into any new edition, particularly, um, you know, robot Gillimot, hmm. um, who is obviously massive because he's a Primarch and Primarchs are huge, but he's, he's ma- like, you know, we've both been reading the Horus Heresy novels, which describe how much bigger the Primarchs are than a normal human. Yeah. But he is, huge compared to a normal human like you know he's a space marine comes up to his thigh which isn't quite 
I always imagine them as big, but there's plenty of times where people are talking to a Primark and they're in the same room. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's not like... They're not in a tower. And yeah. He's like, his head's two stories above them. Yeah, exactly. Like leaning in through the window. Um, <laughs> not like the fucking BFG or something. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. They're actually... The big friendly Gilliman. <laughs> the, yeah. <laughs> they, they all sit around the table together and, or, or stand around the table and, uh, and converse. Yeah, and, and they're always impressed beats. by how big the Primark is, but yeah. it's within the, within the concept of a man what fits around a table. Yeah, and I always get, I really get a sense from the books that they're, it's not just their physical size, but they sort of embody a lot of ideals that, you know, yeah. that they obviously have to glow with, like, they're perfectly charismatic and they're just, like, perfectly chiseled. There's a lot of references forward. to how beautiful Horus is. <laughs> really are. <laughs> he's um, fucking gorgeous. <laughs> he's just the most beautiful man. <laughs> oh, it's a shame if, if he went wrong in any way. I'm, yeah. sure, I'm sure he won't, though. He's, um, he's standing up like <laughs> but yeah so i'm like for me that's like that's a that's an exciting step for them to have made and mm. there's um there's been a photo of people playing a game with blurry miniatures in the distance but it it looks a lot like new ultramarines versus the new death guard that they announced yeah and so you know the initial wave of rumors was that is that the starter kit is that the new starter box mm. death guard versus space marines which would uh death guard being nurgle chaos space marines um, which would make a lot of sense because the the promo image for the new edition of Warhammer 40,000 is a space marine, half of whose helmet is corrupted. <laughs> yeah. Which is as, as, a, I mean, yeah. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> there, 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 you've got it right there. So that all seems to fit together. Um, and that would be an interesting thing. I think it sets them a big challenge because if they go with this sort of subtle change of scale, a lot of models will be fine. Mm. I think things like Skitari will be fine. Um, orcs won't, like orcs badly need new models. Chaos mm. space marines badly need new models in that sense. Um, Imperial Guard would be fine because Space Marines would have outgrown them in the way that is about right in terms of how they look next to each other. Yeah. Um, they've already said they're doing new Sisters of Battle, so that's you know, and Sisters yeah. of Battle are on the factions page, that's so they're right. not yeah. getting yeah. put anywhere. Yeah, it's it's going to be interesting. I mean, in the fluff, you can say because Space Marines still live for ten thousand years; they're basically immortal unless they're yeah. killed in combat. Um, so you, that's the reason you can use your Horus Heresy models in your forty k games because you say, oh, well, they've just survived for ten thousand years, and now they're part of Warhammer forty thousand. Yeah, they're veterans. Um, so you could also say, oh, maybe you know, Reboot Gulliman is or Robot Gulliman has, uh, you know, they've adapted the gene they've, they've come up with like new and improved astartes and the new process for you know turning scouts into astartes actually makes them bigger and better than before yeah but they're still fighting alongside brothers from you know many thousands of years ago but the, the main test is does that look just look really dumb. weird yeah, exactly. <laughs> will that just look really really weird uh, which is really is a valid worry if i had like a big a, a huge space marine army i'd be really really worried about that i suppose there's nothing going to stop you I, I imagine even then like a well-painted army where the models are all consistent with each other will still look good. Yeah. And in the moment, at the viewing angles of tabletop, you're probably not going to be leaning down to see mm. um, what things look like. I guess the danger is if they release some new unit that doesn't currently exist. If they busy themselves re-releasing like assault marines and tactical marines and devastators and everything else, mm. then yeah. But if they, you know what I mean? If they add something that it doesn't currently exist to people want it, then mm. I suppose that's a that's a question. But even then, you could probably explain it away as like some Astartes are just tall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, I think it's really exciting. And I think, um, possibly to preempt one of the questions I think we were sent this month. Um, yeah, it has me eyeing 40k mm. in a serious way. Yeah. In fact, uh, that's, that's, uh, that'll be my question. What force would you gravitate towards if you would start a 40k army now? That is a really good question. Um, I love the Skatari and Adeptus Mechanicus models. 
absolutely love that entire range like everything that exists in, in those ranges I, I would buy and paint somewhere Definitely. right now tom walton is blushing <laughs> oh did he design this yeah oh man that's so good oh you didn't know that no i didn't oh, know tom yeah. did those man fucking hell that's so good um um my friend did the vehicles i think he did all the vehicles oh man the, the walkers and stuff yeah ah awesome uh, shout out to games workshops tom walton yeah there. yeah fantastic uh so my friend uh very generously gave me a box of uh, like Guitari Vanguard, mm. um, who, which I'm going to paint up for if I ever play uh, another piece of news this month. Is of course the Shadow War, Shadow Armageddon. War, Armageddon, and I've got a box there, and I want to do a uh, create a warband for that and do it in kind of John Blanche colours, just like trying kind of watercolory, mm. pale, you know, uh, orangey, uh, browny robes, and like really getting it and like dull bronze metallics and stuff yeah like that. that sounds cool uh, yeah and, and so i I'd, I'd be tempted to flesh that out into a 40k army um otherwise i would actually like a like to have a space marine army mm. i do like really like the space marines what um, chapter would you do good question that's a very good question i used to like the crimson fists but they've kind of drifted out of mm. um concern now uh i actually i've come round to the ultramarines in a way like yeah thanks to the, the latest fiction and also reading the horus heresy like what they've always stood for is that is kind of what I would stand for if I was like, reasonable marines. Yeah, just completely reasonable, really tactically s- sharp. Um, I want to find an equivalent for the emperor's children. Obviously, the emperor's children went wrong, but um, <laughs> they yeah, they were like spoilers purple. for the horror territory. <laughs> <laughs> uh, purple and gold, uh, really ostentatious, but they were just like their tactical masters. They they see war as a form of beauty, and they, it's about mm. tactical execution and perfect formations, and just uh, yeah, a. a, a, a conflict being over in in three hours because they were just so perfectly organized orchestrated assaults like that i'm not sure there is a 40k faction that necessarily matches up to that but that's the kind of space yeah. fantasy i enjoy the most and maybe the ultramarines are closest to that i, I was thinking about this because i had the same thought like if they do do new range space marines i'd be tempted i thought i would go for imperial fists yeah they're cool because um one yellow is just a striking color that you yeah. don't see very often it'd be a paint to paint but you know they're interesting um Two is I like the notion that they are the sort of the castle builders of of the fortress builders mm. of the Space Marines that they you know specialize in this defensive form of warfare. Partly because it's diff- very different to how I'm playing a lot of other games at the mm. moment, um, but also because there are many 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 things I really like about um, Horus Rising, which is Dan Abnett's first novel in the Horus Heresy series. But there is a bit at the very beginning where, uh, partly, I mean, of all of the Primarch, Dawn is one of the kind of like just chill chill ass primarchs <laughs> it really is there's yeah. a mix you know they, they come in different flavors the primarchs and you know i mean horus is one of the chill ass primarchs as well to be fair we mm. get onto this but dawn is like he's one of the you know it's all right man you can you know call me alan or whatever <laughs> rogal call me rogal call me roger um <laughs> yeah um um but there's a great bit at the beginning and i've forgotten it's a it's an important character he comes back um the one of uh dawn's like Seneschal's one of his, the two Marines that follow him around mm. is having a conversation, um, uh, with Garville Loken, who's the protagonist of that whole thing about, uh, and, and Loken's whole thing is saying, I think, you know, we're during the great crusade now. I think the Imperium is only going to go in one direction and that's towards peace. Oh, the yeah, goal of the Astartes is to make the Astartes irrelevant. Mm. The one day we won't be necessary. And it's, it's necessary for us to read and know things about civil life because one day mm. the war will end. And, um, I've forgotten, totally forgotten the guy's name, but he clocked, <laughs> he said, no, I believe that in the future there will be only war. <laughs> <laughs> and like, yeah. and at that point I just, I, I kind of wanted like little, and then there was a round of applause from the back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That guy was great. The appeal of is just fiercely proud pragmatic as well yeah but but also he speaks only in like warhammer 40k marketing <laughs> <laughs> in the grim darkness of the future yeah um 
And ever since then, I was like, nope, Imperial Fist now. Yeah, that could, um, that would be. I, I like, I mean, the other thing I might do is, um, just keep going with Thousand Suns. Like, Thousand Suns are definitely my favorite chapter of Space Marines. And that's not just because of my mm. thing for Zinch. It's because I love everything about their story. Um, you know, I, I like, I, I love who they were in the Horus Heresy and how they fit into that fiction. Yeah. Definitely. But they are, they are probably the other chapter. It's interesting. They're the other chapter that gets things done with the minimum amount of force mm. in the traditional way. Like, they will happily just, you know, cast one spell to pacify a planet with yeah. their psychic powers rather than, ever commit boots to the ground that like they they're a minimum force kind of way which is probably why the space wolves hate them so much mm. um it's interesting that all of the kind of like minimal force tactical masters <laughs> fell <laughs> yeah yeah they really did um but yeah so i and, and i you know i even love like the idea of the rubric marines and that's a kind of cool tragedy Araman is probably one of my favorite characters in mm. in warhammer generally so the the new uh kind of uh 40k rubric marine kind of priests they released at fantastic models as well with their staffs yeah. and all the and the cool thing is is all of my demons from aos come yeah, straight over yeah so I, really i'd cool. already have a big chunk of the force anyway yeah so it might be that, that just happens generally i think the the thing putting me off is that you know part of me would like to branch out slightly from being like <laughs> fucking zinch fan number one <laughs> but also like i've painted a lot of blue and gold and gold trim and that kind of thing and yeah it you know maybe i'll need a bit of a break from it but we'll, we'll see the other thing i'm thinking about doing is imperial knights like just uh, keeping yeah. collecting night wardens and just building up mm. a little household night. They thing. are great, great models. Yeah, and that that appeals to me because there's nothing like that in AOS really, where That's you true. just create, pick three, build three big models, and you're yeah. done. That's very appealing. I think uh, the one thing that would stop me from collecting ultramarines is uh, the shade of blue they are, mm. <laughs> which is a really weird thing to say. But I find it a really boring, like sort of corn flowery dark slightly dark obviously but just really kind of boring <laughs> looking. Uh, so if I could adapt that to almost like. Uh, the, the Stormcasts are great because they use Cantor blue, which is really dark. Yeah, it's McCrag instead of Cantor, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's a, a really dark, rich color. Mm. So if, if, um, I had the freedom to paint my Ultramarines in a better flavor of blue, then I think I might collect some Ultramarines, which is a, a really facile reason. <laughs> but there you go. That's exciting. Mm. Um, you mentioned Shadow War Armageddon, which, oh, of course. um, mm. we should, yeah, which is probably the other part of this month's season, even though it's the previous part of the month. So this is, it's basically new Necromunda. The rules are a lot of Necromunda. This is urban combat in the 40k universe intended mm. to be playing over, uh, campaigns where death is permanent for your small warband and where you gain resources that allow you to reinvest in your warband and so on. Um, I never really actually played Necromunda. I was a Mordheim kid. Yeah, me too. Um, but this appeals. One of the things that was notable about it is they released it as a big box set with quite a lot of the new terrain, which looks great. Um, it was like a 90 pound box, but if you bought that, you got everything, quite a big discount. You got like a Space Marine Scout Force, a Orc Force, and probably about 100 odd quids worth of terrain straight up. Uh, that sold out immediately. They sold out in 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. And there was some fan Ferrari. But as a result, they have already kind of updated and turned around the rule book, which comes out next week. Fantastic. As a standalone book. Again, that 25 quid price point for a standalone book. And you can buy the scenery separately, can't you? Yes. You yeah. But the thing that occurred to me is that, like, I'm actually really happy that it's happened this way around because I only kind of want the rules for now. Mm. Like, I don't really know what Warband I'd like to collect. Yeah, I have some ideas. Yeah. I really like the idea of playing it. But also, I don't... I've got enough hobby projects. Like, if it means painting five or six models to play, fine. But I don't aspire to keep store or own a huge set of urban 40k terrain yeah really hmm. uh, that's the kind of thing i'd happily go to a club for mm. right um go to the local games workshop yep go out to bristol where we play sometimes like use their terrain like yeah there's sure. plenty of ways to do it um that's the thing that i think clubs have gotten really good at solving like 
the problem of terrain having your own versus sharing versus whatever so just getting the book and then you know hmm. essentially the book and basically any box of 40k infantry for any of the supported factions will be enough to get a warband going yeah um and that's exciting to me i think that's brilliant i think the problem i had with the starting set was that um didn't like any of the models that were in it the orcs are super old and yeah, the scouts are super I, I, old like, as well you know, i've got these two um huge boxes cobble boxes from my childhood which has loads of my old models in hmm. those those orcs are in there <laughs> right. which means that those orc models are old, they go old. way way back um, i think it's like one of the yeah. first orc plastic kits so uh the scenery is fantastic but i, I wasn't going to drop 90 pounds without get, caring about any of the actual characters or models and i don't really want the scouts you know, yeah i don't like those old scout models i'd no. love to see them updated yes absolutely uh so yeah it's a, it's a i love the idea of them bringing back like small faction games where mm. i can have my skatari or added mechanicus thing project and just lavish loads of attention on like a few models and really kind of care about it yeah the thing i'm thinking of doing is picking up a box of harlequins oh nice that's the thing i was thinking about um this is i don't want to add another project because i've got so much on but um I really love the Harlequin models. Mm. I haven't done anything elfy or Eldari yeah. ever. Um, and I had this idea of doing, uh, I would never do a Harlequin army because I think it would drive me mad because <laughs> these are, these are the fanciest Eldar of all the Eldar. Absolutely. Yeah. But what it would be is to have each of them dressed differently, like rather than have a uniform style for each of them, you don't need to do that with Harlequins. No. Um, would be to set like a really strong color scheme for each individual model mm. and have each of them express something different, but based on like, kind of like, you know, there's a lot of like alt pop and kind of like electro pop that I quite like, you know, sort of trippy music videos and things like that. Mm. And like basically a very eighties revivalist no, kind of like, for, yeah, color scheme for, for Harlequin specifically because they're very eighties, like in the way that color scheme generally come together. And I think that's such a good fit for what's basically sort of Necromunda. And like part of me is a bit sad they didn't kind of go into the punk uh like this proper cyberpunk thing that the original yeah, yeah. was going for where it was just uh augmented brutes with terrible haircuts in like bright colors and stuff like that and i completely understand and it is actually probably a better decision to let people just use their 40k models rather than come up with this whole separate range and aesthetic but harlequins are a great window for you to yeah. channel that again basically yeah i guess what i mean is like looking at sort of um music video fashion in a particular direction looking at like cyberpunk fashion and that kind of thing mm. and like actually planning every outfit not just having a color scheme and painting it but yeah. like each of them has like a thing mm. and a color scheme that might be a little bit unusual and i really like that idea um loads of scope for conversions for yeah for for, for any warband like that as well which is what more time was to get out. well in the harlequin kit is one of the very few where it comes with a um enough parts to swap out that you can make them all female or all male or whatever which is nice i mean mm. i think most kits should be like that ideally um so that's the thought i'm um, actually i've got the book on pre-order because i'm just kind of curious to see it but it's nice knowing that it's a game where I can just pick up one box of stuff, yeah. paint that, and then we can go and play and it's done yeah. rather than, you know, being a commitment on quite the scale that some of the other stuff seems mm. to be. It's always fun to go down to the local GW as well. Yeah. Use their terrain. Yeah. Which I, was, I mean, I would be amazed if they weren't investing big in it. Cause this, yeah. this was, I think ahead of 40K's revival, this was the sort of way into 40K for people. Like, I mean, I guess if they hadn't announced 40K 8th edition yesterday, I probably in this pod, I probably would have been saying this feels like my way into 40k when I don't want to get into the yeah. the mess that the game has become. Mm. So yeah, it's exciting. Ah, awesome. So I think that's I mean obviously that's a very games workshoppy news section. Yeah, I think I believe again it's an unprecedentedly packed 
uh, news segment. Yeah, we didn't even, I mean, Caradron and Overlords are out. Space Force, yeah, they're coming yeah, out. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I suppose you haven't seen much more of them yet, but mm. apart from them, the models are real nice. Yeah. Like, and the rules are cool. There's rules for vehicles, basically, in AOS now. Yeah, transports. Tr- transports, yeah. Yeah, blimps. Um, there's been a, so, um, one thing I guess is sort of half news, because it came out, yes today podcast voice or very soon no it's it's this week actually so um this would be a slight diversion but um while i was at and this maybe segues into what we've been doing this month because it was right at the beginning of this month for me i was at rezd and i played rune wars which is fantasy flights tabletop battle game oh yeah that thing mm. um and so um you know fantasy flight obviously the makers of a lot of games that i love like x-wing um and i was uh you know a uh, a uh, friend, I think, who listens to the pod, Tom, um, uh, suggested that we go and play the demo of, of, of Room Wars, and I went down and, and played it. And this is, I mean, so if, if Internet Rumors are to be believed, it was making this game, which is a, you know, paint-it-yourself tabletop battle game, um, was one of the reasons that Fantasy Fight lost the Games Workshop license, because it meant that they were entering space the Games Workshop themselves occupy, mm. whereas I think they were probably happy to produce those games as long as Fantasy Fight were making card games and things the Games Workshop doesn't make. I don't know how true that is, but it gels with me that like it's fantasy fight are more of, are more of a direct competitor to Games Workshop now than they've ever been, and the big part of that is is Room Wars. So it is set in the Descent universe, which is their um sort of dungeon crawler game, a bit like Silver Tower. And there's a few other games set in that setting, and so all right. So big caveat is I came away with quite a bad impression of that game. Like I really didn't like it. And I say this is an X-Wing and an Age of Sigma player. Um, and it is a fantasy battle game that uses X-Wing style dials and movement templates to kind of judge units moving around, yeah. which is on paper something I should really like. I also wanted to caveat it by saying that this was a demo, demo game with a demonstrator showing me how it played with another person who was equally new to it. So there's every chance that there is, um, you know, depth and quality to the way it's built that, um, it doesn't come across in that first session. Yeah. However, I would say that all of the games I've ended up, I've ended up loving have, I've left excited every time I played it the first time or I haven't been able to stop thinking about it or something like that. Mm. You know, that's happened recently with the card game, Star Wars Destiny, the card and dice game, which I just clicked in my head immediately and I really, Mm. really like it. And it's beyond the remit of this podcast, but that happened with X-Wing and I've I've introduced enough people to X-Wing now that I know that when you play it with them once and they kind of see them get it. Yeah. It's a beautiful kind of thing. Straight away. Um, this is so this is it's got unit blocks and it's got like jigsaw bases and stuff like that yeah so right? it's got so units sit on movement trays that are like four like two by twos hmm. and then they snap together into jigsaw blocks up to like four by fours to make you blocks of ranked infantry um and i mean this is where it starts to get this is where my criticism starts to develop from it's a very complicated game okay. by my standards and I might, like, I think it's probably simpler than Warhammer Fantasy Battle. And I feel like that's maybe the space it's actually trying to occupy. It's not AOS, which is more of a skirmish game. Um, but is the sort of place that Fantasy Battle occupied where the angle that you charge from is important. It's probably simpler than that. Hmm. But um, I guess my first criticism of it was that I found it overcomplicated, extremely overcomplicated, um, for what was actually happening. Um, I I find that if if a rule set means that you have to do a certain amount to resolve something relatively straightforward, like who's fighting who, and there are a bunch of different rules that kick in. By the time I finish figuring out the rules, my mind's eye picture of what is happening in the game is gone. Hmm. And I've just started to think about the 
the maths of it. And the games I love, like X-Wing and like Age of Sigmar, actually, are quite good at making things important, but not so important that you're only thinking about the maths that are implied by them. You still have that sense of, this was a dramatic charge, this was a flanking maneuver, and so on. So I can't even get into all of the complexity of, of how it functions, but the basic nature of it is each unit has like uh, two dials that are on the back of a card that you keep facing you hidden from your opponent and one of the dials and both dials are like actions that the unit can take so this um so unlike x-wing where like moving and shooting are different things um it's like or even uh age of sigma where you have things happen in the hero phase things happen in the movement phase things happen in the combat phase etc it's almost like everything the unit does is on these two dials mm. um and uh, bear with me when I try and articulate how this functions. So um, that includes things like obviously moving, charging, um, turning, uh, blowing a horn to gain like a bonus, like rallying, that kind of thing, um, getting a morale boost, getting a defense against the potential morale deficit, uh, includes shooting, includes um, all of these different things. And one set of those actions has uh, like a number associated with it which is the order it happens in the activation phase. So in X-Wing, for example, um, pilots have a pilot skill. And when you activate pilots in the activation phase, they don't move in player order or a turn order between the players. They um, essentially, worst pilots go first, good pilots go last, and then good pilots shoot first and bad pilots shoot last. And that's the way the game works. It always works like that. Mm. There are things that can modify your pilot skill up and down, but it's very visible. It's printed on the pilot's card, which is visible to every player at all times. And it's visited on the base of the miniature as well. So you know, if you can read numbers in order, you know at a glance of the table who's going to move first, who's going to move second. And it's it's possible to forget and get confused or get thrown out or miss something, but it's always on you as a player. Mm. Whereas in uh, Rune Wars, different actions for different units happen at different times. So uh, this is totally off the top of my head. My unit charges on a three, but moves on a five. Mm. So it would charge earlier in the order than it would move. So the unit, unit's initiative fluctuates with its actions. Yes. So initiative is set by the unit's action. And the opponent's completely blind to those numbers. Yes. And so, well, so technically you could know them all. And I imagine if you're a very good player, you so would know memorize. those are skeletons. They they charge on a three. I've got to make sure I do something on a two to get there ahead of them. Mm. But if you're new, there's no way you'll know that. You're barely getting your head around when you're own things. You're still getting your head around, I want to charge. Do I want to charge or I don't want to stop? Do I want to turn, etc. Um So the best example of this is um I thought I was going to move a big lock of my infantry into position to um block a charge actually um but my opponent's charge happened before that and i think connected with the unit so i didn't know that i'd be moving second i assumed i just didn't know so i was like i want to move to get in the way of this charge before they charge my other guy or whatever um but then it happens that their charge activates first so they charge and then my movement order does take me into the side of their unit so i was thinking oh well great like now i flanked them because i charged into the side then the guy doing the demo says, oh, no, actually, because you did a movement command, not, not a charge, charge command, command huh. your unit gets shaken. You take a, you take a, a, a penalty right. because you moved into them rather than charging into them. Okay. And so I guess the, the moral is okay. if you think there's any danger that you'll collide, always be charging. Mm. And this is stuff you learn, but it felt very – it was very unsatisfying. Like it was a very sort of, oh, okay. Like I think any game where you find yourself having to explain to the other player, well, actually, this is bad. Hmm. often ends up really unsatisfying if if that's for sort of hidden feeling reasons basically yeah uh like i feel like i probably sucked at it and i made a bunch of wrong decisions but i always thought i was making a decision that i thought was right 
and then I would find out when things were resolved that it was badly wrong. So, like, my internal logic of how you play, I think the speed at which I expected it to move, and maybe we were playing on a table that was too small for it, that's a possibility. I mean, it was using the playmat that's provided, so it's not miles Mm. off. But um, the whole thing just felt like... I was doing, like, it was a demo game, I had nothing at stake, so I wasn't frustrated or anything, but I was just sat there kind of like going, oh, okay, oh, 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 so you don't, oh, I don't get this. And as as the guy doing the demo has to explain, well, actually, because you did this, unfortunately, you have to take a penalty. Mm. And then, um, the, like silly things like um, uh, the skeletons that I had regenerate, but only if there's a spare spot on the base. But if you lose four of them, you lose one whole base, so they can't regenerate if they die in groups of four, which right. is pure gamesmanship. <laughs> yeah. Like that's pure games. That's nothing to do with the fantasy of being a regenerating skeleton army. Mm. Like they don't have like a base form non-numerical system. Where they they can't perceive <laughs> of any more skeletons than are currently there because they can't that's see really an odd number. Very funny rule. <laughs> yeah. And um and so again, that's a guy having to say, well, actually, I'm sorry, you don't get your regeneration because the base, the whole base is gone. It's good for him that he's killed that many because if he killed one more, you could get one back. Hmm. It's like, well, okay, like great. The other side of it was um the way they set up the demo game had the other guy's cavalry opposite my archers. So I thought, well, I'll wheel my archers into position. I'll probably get one round of shooting off before the cavalry hit them. But I was strategizing. I was thinking, he'll probably spend two turns killing the archers. Mm. So I'll, you know, um, I'll get a round of shooting off, but it'll tie him up while I do something else. And then um, he dialed in two movement actions. So like on the cavalry, they can put in like move and move again. Mm. And also different actions have different colors. And if the colors are complementary, something else happens. So the- <laughs> um, uh... yeah. Um, and so he ended up charging. He covered the entire board in one move. And then killed all the archers in the first turn. Hmm. And so I think maybe if that's possible for a demo game, you shouldn't set them all opposite each other because it's really obvious if you're the cavalry guy to just go like, well, forwards. Yeah. And that shouldn't be one turn's worth of, no. you know, fighting. But yeah, so mm-hmm. the, that, that whole experience I found like, I just find it needlessly fit. It's a shame because, you know, it's interesting to see another company enter that arena that's so dominated by GW, but I just had no fun. Also fundamentally that the dial idea is fantastic. I love how good it is in x-wing like um th- th- it also allows you to introduce analog movement that doesn't require a lot of kind of tape measurementship <laughs> if you know what i mean like you've just got dials and you know it, it goes exactly this distance and people can't like accidentally mismeasure or cheat or anything like that it's just very clear and that applying that to a a war game like a block infantry based war game is a fantastic idea it sounds like it's just been they've almost like reverse engineered x x-wing too much and, yeah it feels like it's too or like you know, X-Wing was never supposed to get it on with Warhammer Fantasy Battle. Right. And create a game with the elegance <laughs> of neither. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I was trying to be very magnanimous and say, like, who do I think this is for? Mm. And I think if there's someone who really misses the sort of traditional complexity of a of medieval battle game about wheeling big blocks of troops into position, there might be something there. And by all means, it maybe was just a bad demo and that happens. Mm. Um, but I really didn't have a good time with it, which is rare for me. Like, you know, I was at Star Wars Celebration in Orlando last weekend and I had a demo game of Armada, which is the game I've always dodged. That's the fleet level counterpart to X-Wing. Yeah. Like Star Destroyers and things. And I asked the guy to just, I couldn't play a whole game. We had enough time, but I said like, can you just show me like how, how it works? Like for two turns. He's like, sure. And we played it and I was immediately having fun. And maybe my investment in that setting helps, but I was immediately like seeing how it fits together and seeing how it's different to X-Wing in ways that were exciting. And, mm. and it still wasn't overcomplicated. Um, you know, it was simpler in some ways and more complicated in others. And I think oscillating around that sweet spot. But speaking about the setting thing, I think the thing that struck me as well is that uh, the Room War setting, the Descent setting, it's hyper-generic fantasy. It's post-Blizzard, hmm. 
um, you know, Warcraft is post is, is sort of, um, you know, Warhammer with the edges sanded off mm. to a great extent. Um, it's Warhammer detached from its kind of Moorcock and, and sort of 2000 AD kind of grittiness. Um, this is even more so. This is, you know, you, it's forgettable fantasy stuff. It's here are, here are soldiers of man. They wear blue and silver armor. Here are sort of skeletons from bad. <laughs> they are skeletons. Mm. Um, you know, the models themselves are quite nice. They're the better, they're, you know, they're probably some of the nicer models fantasy flight have made in terms of just the level of detail. But I mean, if you compare it to where Games Workshop are at with just inventive stuff and having a universe that you give a shit about, mm. particularly what they've done with Age of Sigmar that we talked about last month about continuing to make every race mad in some new way. Like we're not just going to have dwarfs. We're going to have Bioshock Infinite Sky Dwarves. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. Is it, you feel like you look at um, those sets and you think that that setting is never going to surprise me or yeah. excite me. Is I've already seen everything they could they're going to do. They announced um, they announced their first like expansion set, like the th- the third faction to be released for it. Cause the first one is like, undead and humans, and it's sort of wood elves. And uh, you know, if you if you just threw some like wood elf nouns at me, you'd be completely right. Hmm. Like, do you have glade runners? Like, yeah, probably. Hmm. Do you have like people who ride deer with? like thin elegant looking spears yeah do you have arches a lot of them yeah do you have tree people yeah like it's like bet they don't have war dancers though <laughs> exactly the mad drug taking tattoo yourself with spirals and you know learn to dance yeah. good particularly like you know it makes for a pointed comparison with something like sylvaneth which is like we're going to redesign wood elves how yeah. do we do that we make them fucking weird like they've, they're crawling with these like um fat beetles and grubs that you know fire acid at people and, and like uh, a lot of them are just elven spirits fused with trees, like mm. just half, half they elf, look half scary tree. and angry, yeah. and and the rest and of it, like kind of broken, yeah. yeah. And I, I know, like, I don't want to come across as too much of a gay social humble because God knows, like, I spent far more on fantasy flight stuff, and I still love, you know, I adore X Wing as a game. I'm getting super into Destiny. I think that's a really nice design. Mm. Um, you know, I've got, I'm, I love their pen and paper games. Uh, you know, I think they they can really do this, but I was I was surprised by how unimpressed I was with with Rune Wars particularly. It's a shame. The competition's always good. Yeah, it is. But for now, I think there's no, no stopping the the Warhammer bus. <laughs> it rolls on and on and on. We should talk about. Uh, well, I suppose the thing we've both had a big month of is the horse hearsay. Yes. Have you heard about those horses? <laughs> yeah, they're beautiful, but they go wrong sometimes. Exactly. Turn beautiful horse. horse. <laughs> poor horse. Poor horse. Not really poor Horus, actually. Fuck that guy. <laughs> These are the emotions you'll experience reading the Horus Heresy. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, we both picked up the, the Humble Bundle mm. um, collection of books. I'm only actually halfway through the first one, and so you've, you've, you've plowed on ahead. Mm. But those, like, do they keep up the quality bar of the first one? Because I was genuinely uh, surprised uh, by Dan Abnett stuff is just a cut above. Right. That doesn't surprise me. Um, when uh, you, like, it's still... Uh, keeps the same characters the first book um so the characters alone is just really strong and uh, really interesting and the primarchs are really really interesting it's almost just like a celebrity's popping up in your fiction it's like oh it's that guy and here's his deal and just seeing it, not seeing but you know reading these how these people react to each other is still exciting in future books but dan abnett is like it's i think if i wasn't into 40k i would read that book and get a lot out of it yeah. as almost a kind of stress test of the space marine ideal or as a vision of how humanity could become like a secular uh sort of secular imperialist force 
uh, and you kind of stress tests with lots of different invasion scenarios. And it's, it's actually, I think it's really clever and really, mm. really good. And it, uh, it, the ending is great as well. Like it's really, it takes it, you know, the space Marines to their logical conclusion. Like, you know, what, what happens to space Marines is they're ideologically, uh, compromised. Then surely that punctures their whole deal that punches that whole bubble yeah yeah and uh that is so well realized in that first book i think it's genuinely good science fiction yeah like, yeah it is very compelling sense of a world like mm. it makes the kind of the silliness of 40k the faux latin and stuff kind of just fit as part of a yeah it's a got fiction a really like touch and also it feels like almost like a, an 80s sci-fi book because they're they're fighting all these crazy alien species because yeah in 30k uh what's really exciting about it is all of the factions aren't defined so they can they're going out into the universe to try and spread the imperial truth and uh, you're reminded that actually the space marines started out as being this really kind of secular cult as opposed yeah. to the religious cult that they are in 40k which is part of the fall um in an interesting way um but they're always meeting these different alien species that have just very different like there's a, a tyranid type one and then there's like a, a really cultured one there's like a a slightly backwards religious one and the, the way the space marines treat all these different uh you know encounters t- tells you a lot about them and they're a lot more complicated than just being kind of brutish uh just stupid soldiers for the emperor yeah and the questions that the books ask are actually genuinely mm. good questions to ask it's not it you know the the question at the beginning of the first book is could you not have left them alone mm. and the fact that the space that, that's like an existential crisis for all space <laughs> yeah could we not have done this yeah and by the end of the book wow that <laughs> it, it gets really back into that quite hard yeah it's really really good um and also it does a great job of introducing uh horus as a mm. as a you know the brilliant thing about 30k is you know how it ends if you're at all interested in the setting and it's called the horus heresy you know, <laughs> you know what's going to happen uh so it's it's the kind of um dramatic irony of knowing that he's going to fall and also seeing him at his best yeah. in that first book and the kind of tragedy of that and they're great. also like all of the all of the we talked about this a little bit already but like all of the space marine chapters that are doomed are chill as hell <laughs> like there's a strange there's a back. strange knowledge of like the, the early scenes with abaddon mm. and they're all like just becoming part of the cool the, the mournival which yeah. is the kind of the the, the bro uh unit the, yeah the lunar walls uh, kind of like bro yeah. bro unit like we have a we have a, we have a flat management structure <laughs> here at lunar wolf hq like yeah. if you're chill enough you get to join the the, the, the mournival and then you know we're just gonna listen to what you have to say like there are no bad ideas well the only bad idea is let's not fight <laughs> <laughs> that's the only bad idea but other than that there are no bad ideas here guys let's mm. just let's just chill out and then you're like you're almost like you want that kind of slow pan in on Abaddon 10,000 years later when he's just covered in fucking skulls. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, you may be wondering how I found myself <laughs> yeah. in this. <laughs> Man, how do you, t- how do you go so wrong over <laughs> such a period? It stood out to me because, um, I, right before I started reading, um, Horus Rising, I finished reading, I think the second Realm Gate Wars book for Age of Sigmar because I've been kind of plodding my way through them. Mm. Um, and I find them variously easy and hard going based on who the writer is because some of that stuff is not good. Mm. Like some of it is a bit, rough and i appreciate that i think there was probably a bit of a rush to get fiction out the door with with age of sigma because it's creating a new universe from scratch and by all means the earliest fiction for 40k wasn't like this and one of the reasons 30k can be like this is because it has this benefit of having this pre-existing 40k universe which is already very very detailed Mm -hmm. and getting to explain how it became that way and invent a lot but also you know has loads of hooks to hang things off whereas age of sigma is still you know 
a, a while away from being something that you could knowingly refer back to and yeah, have people notice what you're getting at. Hmm. Like one day, 10 years from now, we're all going to be delighted by reference to the Realm Gate Wars in some future Age of Sigmar novel hmm. in third edition Age of Sigmar or something. But it's, it is ages away from that. And there's a very refreshing change of pace to being like, this is a good writer working in a detailed universe. Whereas even the best writers in the Age of Sigmar fiction are working with quite rudimentary stuff. Yeah, definitely. In a lot of cases. It really, um, I, I thought exactly the same thing as well. Like, uh, if only Age of Sigma could be like this. But of course, as you said, it can't because it doesn't have that background. Um, but I think there's a lot to be said for having your main factions be just morally grey and just interesting mm. in, in a lot of ways. Where I think the the audience has done that for um, for the Stormcast. I'm not necessarily sure the fiction is kind of. It's, it's sort of leaning that way, but you know, there's it a lot of hints at it. it. Yeah. Like there's stuff like the Galactors are always bound to the realm of death in some way. And they, yeah. you know, always have some kind of contract with the realm of death, but they're not like truly tortured by it. No, they just, they just love killing. And as long as they're getting on with the killing, then they're fine. Um, yeah. Which is sort of, with space Marines, that's true for them as well. But you know, there's, there's, there's ideology, the genuine ideal, uh, ideological constructs that drive the space Marines in their various directions. And that's not necessarily true for the Stormcast. Yeah. It's not, you can't say that Stormcast, like, well, why do you need to intervene against chaos? Yeah. And then like cut to realm of chaos, like stop pulling off all of my skin all day. <laughs> like if only yeah. someone would intervene. <laughs> it's true. And uh, maybe that's just because there aren't many kind of, um, the fiction hasn't had a chance to do many more interesting scenarios mm. where the, the idea of pushing back chaos is just inherently a good idea because chaos is obviously terrible. Whereas if you're in the Horus Heresy, they don't even know what chaos is yet, yeah, which is brilliant. Uh, and then kind of discovering it for the first time, that makes it a, like a good horror story as well as anything else. Yeah. Um, whereas it's all, it's all in place and, and um, there's a reason why the, the chaos books are more interesting than any of the other books in Age of Sigma. It's because chaos, like it's battling itself. So there's actually interesting conflicts that don't have there's to con- be There's conflicts of perspective. Exactly even if right, it's like, yeah, well, it. I would like you to be tentacles <laughs> and I would like your skull. <laughs> exactly. And even that's more interesting than, you know, good versus evil is, is always, yeah, look, looks good on the tabletop, but isn't necessarily that compelling a thing. I think, yeah, I think you can read into, you can make the Stormcast more interesting by, by seeing them from a chaos perspective as well, where mm. Sigma is just another god or godling, you know, probably yeah. more aligned with corn than anything else. And uh, I've tried to make my stalkers more interesting by simply coming up with stories about them that are more interesting, frankly, than the fiction that has been told about Stormcast. And like, so I know who my relictor is and what, where he comes from yeah. and why he's in black armor as opposed to, you know, gold armor and all that kind of stuff. Like, um, and I'm waiting for that to kind of filter into the fiction. And in fact, there's been a bit of a lull in um, releases for AOS books, I think. There was a Caradron's out this weekend, I think. Oh, right. So okay. that's, so a, that's one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then there was the, I mean, there was the, it, they're keeping the pace up in that it's been one a month this month. Okay. Cause it was Zinch, Stormcast, Corn, hmm. Carriage and Overlords. Hmm. But yeah, it hasn't been like a big drop or anything yet. No. Um, so I, I'm excited about watching hopefully the fiction of that universe move into this, move up a level. Basically. Yeah. There's definitely those potential. And I think, I think, um, you know, there's probably equivalent to like how Horse Heresy is probably the most interesting thing that's ever happened in Warhammer 40,000. Cause it's worth, you know, even though, you know, we're painting, you know, maybe things with rose-tinted spectacles a bit. One of the problems with Warhammer 40,000 universe is it hasn't moved much at all. True. For, they keep recycling the same events like the 13th Black Crusade. Mm. Um, you know, in, in the 20, 30 years that, that fiction's been around, it hasn't really, it's changed, but it's not moved. Um, and Age of Sigmar is already moving. And That's it's true. been designed to move. Mm. It's been designed to let them move. And I imagine New 40k will be the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the fiction they've already come up with 40k this year has been 
already just they've changed what Eldar can be completely. Yeah. With uh, you know, the rise of the Eldari and Death Cults. So I think um but like I think that they will I think they put themselves in that position with thirty K. I mean sorry, with with Age of Sigmar, I think the reason thirty K makes for a good such a first all around forty K storytelling is it's actually weirdly, despite being about a series of events where everyone knows what ultimately happens. Mm-hmm. There's actually loads of freedom there to keep stuff moving mm. because you can start that story at any point in the past and tell a really interesting story up to the final moment when Horus confronts the Emperor. Yeah. And that's kind of what they did, right? Mm. Like you say, well, we'll start this point and everything about this is going to be interesting because you know there's a journey here. Whereas when it's a journey into the unknown, that's, I think, always been traditionally quite difficult for 40k to commit to. Mm. So it'll be interesting to see where they go next with it. Is there a Horus Heresy book that actually gets to the final conflict i don't think they've gotten there yet but obviously okay. everyone knows there's been other stories that have covered roughly what, they've ha- done the roughly what happens yeah um so my problem with the horus heresy so far now i'm on book four is that the first two and a bit books are really compelling because it's it's um following the main thrust of the heresy then from that point on the book series as far as i could tell just broadens massively and it's mm. all like simultaneous action on like 20 different planets and this is what the ultramarines are doing and this is what the, the space wars are doing um and it doesn't actually like it loses all that thrust and i just want yeah. to get to the point i want the book where horus reaches terror and you know that story's already been told i just want to read it like yeah, dan abner yeah. write it or someone i suppose this is the element of like you want to get to the point where your boys are in it as well so i'm like i'm excited <laughs> to get to a thousand sons because yeah, that's that's, that's where i want to get to right yeah. that's what i'm interested in mm. and then maybe at some point you just read the one that's interesting to you mm. out of that big horizontal conflict yeah maybe but, the purpose of that series isn't to you know reach the end point ever <laughs> it's more to give um everyone everyone who collects a space marine army of any description their due in the 30k literature yeah, yeah their victory lap mm. or not um so speaking of which has this made you more interested in 30k as a game as a as a way of playing warhammer yeah definitely now especially uh having uh bought with you chris the prospero set i've got some space walls now and the idea of pushing them around uh just as a tactical squad with you know a leader and some sisters of science just to see how the rule set works i would definitely be interested in trying it something that i realized so i didn't know this until someone more knowledgeable than me pointed it out is um so yeah, my, my hobby month has been, um, from a painting point of view, has been dominated by my Thousand Sons. Um, I've completed all of the Terminators now, which is nice after spending, I think we talked about it last month, but having spent so long on my first tactical squad, mm. getting the Terminators done in like two weeks was like a big kind of like, I can still do this. <laughs> I can still finish a unit relatively quickly. Yeah. Um, and I've, by the time we post this podcast, I will have finished Araman, um, the, you know, the, the, chief librarian of the thousand sons and um sort of magnus's second i guess who ends up taking on the defense of prospero mm. because magnus is sulking he's really sad he's very sad about having fucked everything up he's got really good reason to be sad though yeah um and i really enjoyed it and then something i realized is so i thought i was still gonna be like a whale a white a, 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 a way away from a sort of legal 30k army mm. But actually, something that I found because because um, the tactical squads that you build for Burning of Prospero are veteran tactical squads, which means they have a lot more equipment options. They have chainsaws and that kind of thing. Um, whereas regular tactical squads are just dudes with bolters, pretty much straight up. Huh. Even the sergeant doesn't have very many other options. Interesting. Thirty um, uh, k makes that distinction in a way that forty k doesn't. Yeah. Um, and one of the problems is veteran tactical squads are an elite choice, which means that you can't take them as a troops option. So even if you had two tactical squads done, mm. you would be all elites right however the thing i didn't know is one of the sort of rights of war which is probably best explained as like a 30k version of a battalion um that is quite commonly used for horus heresy games is called pride of the legion 
which allows you to take Terminators and veteran tactical Marines as a troops option instead. Okay. And there are some downsides to it, mm-hmm. but it means that one thing I realized is that when I finish my two tactical squads and my Terminators and Aramen, presuming that I use Aramen as a kind of generic leader, like a Praetor, like a Legion Praetor, um, I will be at about 820 points. Well, and the model I really, really like for the from the Forge World Thousand Sun stuff is the Thousand Suns Contemptor. Oh, not those are great because they're doing they're doing they've just they've just this week put up pre-orders for the Space Wolves Contemptor, yeah, which looks is gorgeous. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and with all of that, so if I and that is about you know with gear, it can be easily done to about 180 points. Hmm. So what I'm thinking of doing is picking up a Dreadnought at some point it's almost to celebrate finishing the first batch of thousand suns paint that as a victory lap mm. and then i'll have a neat thousand points of legal horus heresy thousand suns yeah, to either explain or sit on mm. not, not literally sit on but like you know just have as a kind of thing mm. as i wish and also actually there are rules for using a contemptor in burning yeah, scenarios, yeah yeah so um so that i think that's something that I don't want to expand my hobby scope too much because I've got enough projects as it is, but that's something I've been thinking about doing in the light of getting into these books is finding the the quickest way to kind of get to a nice even thousand points with my Prospero stuff. Mm. Yeah, that'd be sweet. I think if I was going to do that, I wouldn't necessarily pick Space Wolves because um, I'm not really into their whole deal. I don't really like their color scheme in 30k, which is just gray. Yeah. Uh, which is good for 30k. 30k feels like it's the grittier, kind of more sepia toned, uh, equivalent of a normal. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Areas. Um, but I could, t- I could actually just straight up collect some members' children and they could, they would fight the, uh, you know, uh, chaos forces, fight chaos forces all the time. Yeah. So, yeah. Also, like, you can pick which side of the wall you're on at any point. Of like, course, yeah. So they could be loyalist, um, uh, Emperor's Children. Or Loyalist Thousand Sons. Yeah. Like, I mean, bear in mind, Thousand Sons didn't want to fall, really. <laughs> no. They really had no choice Just whatsoever. Magnus used the bad phone. <laughs> yeah. And then they sent Lehman Russ. <laughs> yeah, he called the Emperor on his cell phone, and um, as a result... And apparently wrecked his grand plan in yeah. some way, set it back by thousands of years. Yeah, because his, his phone rang when he was in the middle of a game of Jenga or something, yeah, and then the entire Imperium down. came crashing Fuck. down. That's my understanding Magnus. of the fall of Prospero. Um... <laughs> But yeah, so that, that's been genuinely tempting because that's, I mean, obviously that means learning seventh edition 40k rules because that sounds like the way, that's the way that Horus Heresy is going to stay. Yeah. But it's appealing because it's, you know. I'd also just give it a spin as well. Uh, yeah. Especially with like not many units. I feel like even a very complicated rule set with just like a few units. Yeah. It's the kind of thing where, it's kind of thing where I'm glad I have access to gaming clubs where mm. people know those rules inside out and will happily uh, my friend, uh, Jim, who runs an uh, independent game shop in, in Bristol called Bristol Independent Gaming, um, is currently painting up a bunch of, um, 30k era Imperial Fists. Nice. So hmm. I said to him, like, you know, well, when you finish them, I will put my Thousand Suns in a bag and you can just tell me how this works. <laughs> yeah, right? great. Like, yeah. And you can tell me, Chris. Yeah, indeed. And then we can. We or can I can watch you and Jim. Yeah, fight. or you can just come. Or I can just come and fight, yeah. fight everyone. Yeah. Indeed. So yeah, so I, I don't know how much the, I imagine with the, the Sisters of Silence and the Custodes, you'd probably be already quite a long way towards... Yeah, I've, I've no idea how Allegiance works in um, 30k. It's so really sure complicated. They, yeah, I'm not sure if they could even turn up with Space Wolves and have that be viable. Um, but, they've, you know, there's, they've released a bunch of, like, Custodes models independently. So I don't mind paying for one or two boxes yeah, to yeah. get an army. Well, those Mark III um, Horus Heresy or Space Marines are now out as a standalone kit yeah, for, like, 20... 
I think the only downside is the I found the the thing that really set off all of my Thousand Sun stuff was the decals that came with the mm. that set. We talked about applying them last month, but that's made a big difference how that unit look and feels, and it's made it's up, it means I feel like they are Thousand Suns now, even though I haven't used any Thousand Sun specific bits on them. Yeah, like um Araman as a model stands out because there's so much extra detail that's gone into that model and mm. it's such a lovely that's model. a great model isn't it um i'm really excited about finishing him which i'll have hopefully pictures on the blog post for this this episode but um whoever sculpted that model has done a, such a beautiful job of presenting a character who's much better known in 40k as like the head the, you know the, the first sorcerer of the thousand suns as they exist in 40k as a fully zinchian mm. chaos space marine legion um, and in 30k is actually a kind of a heroic figure. Like he's the person who led the defense of his home world when his Primarch had kind of given up. And, you know, the space walls are pretty totally in the wrong, at least from his perspective, because they just come to murder everybody <laughs> for no reason. And they're a loyalist chapter in most of it. And, um, his model is beautiful for the way that it incorporates all these like ornate designs and the sort of the Egyptian theme of the thousand suns come across in his headdress, but his headdress also mimics the horns he will eventually have as a chaos sorcerer mm. and the there's like little spikes on his armor and things which come across as like that 30k kind of baroque style but all of them kind of hint at where he's going it's really really nicely done yeah fantastic and it's a really dynamic pose and you know just really just uh, such a good model yeah so the way I've, I've ended up doing it is um he's um his actual sculpt the way it's designed to work is you assemble him and he's stepping off a torso of a space wolf that he's just presumably killed and trodden on um and i didn't really want to do this because i thought it downplayed a little bit like i really like i think you can show Araman in a completely uncomplicated heroic light and it's actually more interesting hmm. because he's fucked like he is so doomed because of what's about to happen yeah that him you know stepping out to lead this kind of heroic defense of the last city on prospero is actually a, it can be a genuinely heroic moment that's more tragic because of what's about to happen rather than having him more in more shades of gray light so what i did is is i've gotten rid of the space wolf body and it's just a case of cutting some bits off his 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 reposing his foot slightly just so it works but um i've modeled him stepping down off a piece of marble um onto the kind of the battlefield that i'm using for the basis of every other unit in that force Mm. um which ironically is painted with the fang and rust gray so it's all (laughs) the, the, the battlefield is all space wolf colors but actually it contrasts really nicely with the red um, because I, I wanted the impression that he's stepping down off a piece of rubble or the bottom of a big flight of marble stairs or something yeah. to enter the battle. It's the idea that he's, you know, sort of stepping into the fight rather than standing triumphantly on a corpse. It's a very subtle difference, but I like, I just, you know, I like the way it kind of makes him look like the good guy, which is, is something that I Frankly, like. he is, in that moment, he's, they're definitely the good guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like the Space Wolves have just pure bloodlust. That like, uh, the Emperor has, his reasons for setting them on the uh, Thousand Suns. But as far as they're concerned, they're just employed as contract killers. Yeah. And it's an opportunity for them to unleash their bloodlust. And they don't necessarily even care that it's on their own battle brothers. We'll get to this because it's going to be this month's battle report. But mm. there's a footnote in the, the first scenario, the Burning of Prospero game, which is just after they're finished killing the planet's human garrison, <laughs> the space wolves move for the Thousand Suns. Yeah. And it's like, yep, they just <laughs> murdered all of the people. Yeah, a lot, that happens a lot in 30k. Lots yeah. and lots of uh, genocide. Yeah. Human garrisons don't tend to do well. They really don't. <laughs> in 30 or 40k. 
So yeah, so you think you would do... What have you been painting this month, Tom? What your, what's your kind of... Uh, so I was getting those baseballs together. They're not quite done. Um, but I wanted to make them just these just mucky, bloodied... Because uh, I was painting them while also just hating them really. <laughs> it's like, no, I'm not hating them, but, you know, the, the model's fantastic and everything. And I enjoy the role I'm playing in the in Prospero as mm. the bad guy, because I never normally play the bad guys in these games. Um and also, obviously, it's quite complicated because technically they're working for the Emperor. But I enjoyed painting them up as these, you know, bloodied, just filthy, uh, they've landed in drop pods and just butchered a whole civilization. And now they're on to the final chapter of it. Um, so it was, it was fun putting that into the models themselves, mm. um, which meant, uh, fundamentally just meant using a lot of blood for the blood god, which is a fantastic technical paint that Games Workshop does that is this kind of really glossy, sticky, red, sort of uh, glaze that if you you can just lump and and put onto uh, the model and to bases to make it look like gore and it retains its kind of glistening quality even once it's dried uh so using that in uh along with like just like learning how to do scarring and little bits of weathering and using agrax mm. earthshade to create oil marks and stuff like that they look completely wrecked <laughs> and uh, battle yeah, hall hardy it, you know? it's a really nice contrast because i've taken yeah. a different tack with a thousand suns but it works like mm. the way i was thinking of the thousand suns armor which i've done in that metallic red that i've spoken about before is they don't wear this all the time they like books <laughs> they like reading they're mm. spending a lot of time you know in their temple libraries not wearing battle armor yeah so it's it's almost ceremonial like as runes down it. it's sort of you know it's and i really like that kind of mm. um that contrast between the two of them like they it's, don't look it, they, yeah. even though they're the, the techniques are very different. They don't look like they don't belong next to each other. It's just that they're two different ideas of what Space Marine looks like. Yeah, I think it, like as a separate approach of when you actually see them on the boards and the Prospero boards are beautiful because uh, the Prospero boards are grey. Uh, my main worry with painting the Space Wolves was that it was going to be like grey armour going onto a dark surface. Yeah. And it, they still struggle to pop because it's just very hard unless you're using... Uh, an op- a color like red like a, or sand or something like that it's mm. very hard to make that armor pop off it but i went with just dark gray and like bloody dark gray in the end knowing that there wouldn't be much contrast but knowing that they would probably look good on the board and especially see having seen your um forces chris having these kind of like mucky grimy just slightly sloppily painted space marines frankly against these beautiful pristine uh shining warriors is that is just the fantasy that's what it's supposed to be like and it's also it's nice because you have that knowledge that like one of these legions is doomed <laughs> yeah. yeah and um we spoke we spoke about this earlier but like you know it's nice using blood for the blood guard on your space wolves and the space mm. wolves are traditionally the, the space mm. marine chapter that is the closest to corn and corn hates zinch and so it's, you know, it's, there's like a, mm. even though neither of them know this at the time, because neither of those legions have fallen yet, one of them won't. There's a sort of nice thing expressed there as well. Like just through the way the, the models have been yeah. put together. Those themes are definitely, definitely there. There's something I, I've, I've done on um, RMN and this was just the first, the first like paint pun was doing the bases in Space Wolf colors, like mm. with Space Wolf blue, just because one, it pops really nicely and it matches all of the art of what Prospero looks like is like, um blue gr- blue earth like sort of you know big expanses like blue mist that kind of thing with like, these kind of like, like glittering marble pyramids creamy marble yeah yeah so i've done both of those things on the bases um mm. to some extent um but i wanted to do uh based on the art you know the the stones and sort of you know adornments on 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 Armin's gear in a kind of like lapis lazuli paint mm. but what i've ended up using is one of you, you were talking earlier about how um like ultramarine blue is the worst blue <laughs> Um, 
the new Thousand Suns paints they released for the release of the 40k Thousand Suns are beautiful. Mm. So ironically, all of the gemstones on Armin are base coated with Thousand Suns blue and then highlighted with Armin blue, <laughs> which <laughs> is like one of the most literal things. Yeah. But it's nice because they are, it means that this little part of his armor is exactly the color that you're all going to be wearing in 10,000 years. Yeah, like, yeah. which is a nice sort of, I don't know, it kind of looks, it's a nice, like, he has more of that color scheme in him than any one, any of the soldiers. Hmm. But he's, all, yeah, he's the one who's going to be directing that force. Like, he, he's, yeah, always his aesthetic direction is going to infuse, obviously. Yeah, it's his rubric. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, um, and then there's a few other things. So there's a lovely little detail on that model, um, where it's covered in, like, all, both of the knee pads are, like, covered in little runes, like, engraved runes and things like that. And on his right knee pad, one of the runes, is the Zeech symbol. Hmm. And it's the only occurrence of like an a- explicitly chaotic symbol on it. So I've just sort of I picked it out in white and then washed it so that it um glows on, on his knee pad. And you can barely see it because it's like partly covered by his tabard. But I like this idea that he doesn't realise at the time, but that little symbol is sort of flaring up as he goes into battle because <laughs> you know he's on the eve of his hmm. of his doom. But actually the the reason you know you've you've done the space wolf thing of having several of your space marines not wear helmets which looks really yeah. good. It actually maybe helps you do, it does help you get out from above that gray armor thing. Yeah, it does help a lot. I, and wherever possible, I used all, I used all the human heads because that's, that is a very spaceful thing to just fuck helmets. Who needs helmets when you're going to, you know, bite someone's ear off. Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, and it's, it's, it, there's a lot of, um, I think Guy Gore's, who's the leader of Space Wars is, is probably the best model. Uh, he's a really nice model as well, actually. He's really good, actually. Well. I think uh, I wasn't too keen on him because he's wielding a tiny, stupid knife in one hand and a huge power claw on the other hand. <laughs> and it's like, well, maybe a space wolf would do that, actually, <laughs> if he was just in the frenzy of battle. Um, him and the Sisters of Science are the best models yeah. uh, in on the space wolf side. Uh, and doing him was really nice, actually, because you can use the fur. It's, it's, it's really fun to paint like the fur with loads of washes and to get like gradients and quite soft gradients on them and then have the grey armour and the, this raging face with blonde hair popping out of it. That's That works really, really well. Mm. And so wherever I could introduce that to the other models, I did. Um, though most of them are just like grey helmeted and they're fine. I really like the the armour design. I, yeah. So I just really wish I could paint a better colour scheme onto it than just grey. <laughs> like even like uh, modern Space Wolves are like very pale blue. They're in like rust grey, which is a type of blue. Yeah. Uh, and actually that would pop off most any, almost any base really. But this just solid grey is not hugely inspiring. Mm. I've done all of my Thousand Suns with helmets on. Mm. Um, even though it's in the art, some of them are not wearing helmets, but part of that is because I wanted to echo the rubric. Because what's going to happen if you don't know the, the background is that the Thousand Suns, because they are psychers, because they're, you know, touched by the warp, they suffer from something called the flesh change, whereas, you know, they, they tend to mutate. They have that problem that some mm. people have. Then chaos spawn sometimes. It just happens, right? <laughs> um, and Araman is obsessed with trying to cure the flesh change. So is Magnus to an extent, but mm. Araman particularly. And Araman will eventually cast something called the rubric of Armin, which is a spell intended to purge the legion of the flesh change what it ends up doing is incinerating the entire legion and turning them into with the exception of him and a few people including magnus um essentially haunted suits of armor so the the 40k era thousand suns are uh cursed mm. ghosts basically occupying suits of armor so you purge the flesh but you didn't purge the change. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> uh, so they don't change, but they can't change now. Like they're sort of trapped. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to kind of hint at that a bit by having them all look like kind of faceless suits of armor. Yeah. Like cool. they're kind of embodying it before they've even gotten there yet. Mm. Like, 
um they, they all have like glowing green eyes which i wanted to, it's not you know that's not um supposed to indicate anything demonic or anything it's just you know it's the the ui inside the helmet whatever that looks like yeah you know it happens to be brighter and kind of glow um Armin has glowing blue eyes because all of his runes are going blue and i wanted to look like he's sort of surging with psychic power hmm. rather than just you know in a way that's actually in addition to whatever his normal kind of look would be um but yeah, so, but I kind of like the idea of having them be sort of faceless and impassive because they're so orderly and probably behaving themselves. Um, <laughs> just functional, really. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. I and mean, it's a ceremonial thing. Like they, they don't, you know, have that individuality and sort of. Yeah. Actually, if, if I'd have thought of this earlier, I could have had like the heads on your sprues and just done like mega heads on the, uh. Yeah. I suppose the only flip side of that is you'd have some identical. Oh, space yeah. Walls. That would be weird. I yeah. mean, they all come from the same kind of gene template, but yeah, still, that's true. That'd be all, a bit weird. all like Lehman Rust. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's by like, nine different Prospero boxes and put Geigel's head on all of them. <laughs> that'd be, that'd be awesome. That'd be dumb. That's like a thousand pounds. Yeah. There are better things to spend money on. Yeah, there are. Um, so is that, um, has that been the, the sum of your hobby this month? Uh, I put together a Star Drake or half Star Drake. So most of the body is built and it's really imposing and exciting. And the pose is a bit balked. I'm not a huge fan of the pose they've done for it. But it looks a lot better than the kind of photography they've done for that model mm. looks. Um, so you don't immediately go to its slightly weird posture and its front two legs. You're kind of more looking at its screaming giant maw. Uh, and it, it does, it does look really cool. I can't wait to paint it. Um, I've also put together some Vanguard Raptors. Who are the long strike? Long strike. That's Raptors. That's Raptors. That's Raptors. That's Raptors. And they're like, uh long distance they're huge actually they're taller than other stormcast like for some reason uh but they have these enormous kind of shooty bows that uh they're basically snipers and they come with three aether wings who are also birds uh, birds as they're also known (laughs) um so i've just built a few a few of those guys um and once my 30k stuff's done which will probably be the next couple of weeks i want to like really crack on with the vanguard forces and do my Vanguard Hunters and the Long Strikes and start on the Star Drake. With the Star Drake, what I want to do, that he comes with like a few head options. So I'm going to glue together the second head and use him as a sub assembly to test a color scheme and make sure that it looks good on that before I, you know, do it on the whole bloody mm. rest of it. <laughs> so, that's exciting. Yeah, that's planning that color scheme is going to be interesting. Yeah. I'm, um, trying to figure out what I want to do next. Cause I'm, as of Armin being finished, which is very soon done by the time you listen to this. I'm one tactical squad away from finishing all my 30k, which is attempting yeah. milestone to reach. At the same time, I'm conscious of the fact that I haven't added anything to my AOS army for a long time now, and I really want to get back on that yeah. and, and have something new so that we can play AOS again and, and genuinely change up stuff mm. with the addition of units. So I'll, I'll see which which direction that takes. So in terms of attempting to maintain our, our three-episode streak of tips about painting things... Mm. Has anything, what's, what would your takeaway from this month's work on tiny plastic people be? Good question. It would be to not let your paints dry out <laughs> as loads of my paints have. And I'd welcome any tips from anyone who is listening really. Um, because I was trying to get some system science done for today and I opened up my, uh, can of purple, which is what their cloaks are. And it, it's like all completely dead. It's just died in the bottle huh. in the, in the thing. And it does happen kind of frequently. Um, Where are you keeping them? Uh, they're in a box, 
so we've got like a they're in their original big paint box mm. and they're kept on a shelf normally. And I think what might have happened is sometimes uh, the way the Citadel paint capsules work is that you open them up and they can sometimes dribble down the back. And if that happens when you reclose it, it doesn't create a seal and therefore right. air gets yeah. in and maybe it dries out if you don't use it for long a long mm. period of time. Um, so I've lost a lot of paints that way, but I'm not sure that is the reason. <laughs> uh, and some paints seem completely fine, and other ones seem to just seem to die. Yeah, I found it depends on the pigment as well. Some of them seem to really clog up quickly and need mm. watering down again, and some of them are fine and, yeah. So it's, it, bunch. Yeah, it's weird that. Um, the thing I've been struggling with with the Space Walls was doing glowy eyes, uh, which I attempted to do by undercoating them white, mm. and then uh, I wanted to do red, and uh, I don't have like a, a red glaze or a proper red ink. So I watered down some bright red with uh, the Lamy medium and then tried to put it over and scoop it into the corners, to try and create a glow. And it's come out as kind of pink. Uh, so I think maybe it might require a few layers, but I know Chris, you've been doing uh, some glowy eyes as well. I've done them in that way. So yeah. mine are, so mine are obviously easier because I do have the glazes. So um, the green glowing eyes have been, um, so the thing I found that works really nicely mm. um, and it's, it can be inconsistent. It's one of those things that I think to get it to look, to get it to look like proper close-up photography good, um, it's been one of the ways in which I've hit the limits of what I can currently do without trying really hard and, and going over it a lot. And I might redo some stuff from Arm in particular, but um, it's the sort of thing that can look good from like a decent tabletop distance, but this technique I think suffers up close. But with that in mind... Um, water down white to the thing they were talking about which is like a milk-like consistency like quite watery and then sort of let it run totally into the the gaps the eyes whatever that you're looking to go into because what will happen is it will settle in the lowest recesses mm. and be thinner which will be the area around the eyes particularly if we're talking about space marine helmet visor eyes yeah whatever they're called um and then it'll be thinnest on the top and then you can go back in when that's dry and pick out just the top of the eye, um, which gives you like a transition from bright white down on the edges of the eye down to bright white again in the the creeks. And if you ever look at something glowing, mm. it tends to glow in the center and then at the very edge that's as, the if, color. as mm. if the center is illuminating the eye socket, if that makes sense, with yeah. a kind of thinner element in the middle. And then it's a case of being patient. So I use Waywatcher Green, which is the green glaze for the regular eyes and, and, and Gillum Blue, mm. Gillum Ot Blue for the um for the blue and uh the way to get it wrong or the way to make it need fixing is to go in with like the full thickness straight away like if you water it down a bit it'll almost do nothing like it sometimes it looks like it's not doing anything mm. but you sort of run that in and then you sort of direct it into the corners um uh, i've done this a bunch on armin because he's got runes on him that are glowing there are vents in his force staff his force stave glaive mm. thing that I've done is glowing as well. And that's the same technique. And it, the, the issue is if the white doesn't settle evenly or if it dries sort of jagged along the edges of the crack, that's super obvious. And you need to kind of go through and kind of smooth it out again. Right. Um, it's fiddly. It's the kind of thing where if it, it's one of those techniques that looks good if you blow your eyes, but up close, it, it would have been better to do like, if you are a master of perfect blending in a very small area, <laughs> you're better off doing it with manually blended pigment rather than trying to do a wash over white yeah but i found that for doing for example you know 10 tactical marines and, and five terminators that wash worked consistently well 
but the trick was to do one thin glaze and then one dark glaze just into the recesses and then if you really want to emphasize it more you can take the whatever the um shade is of the equivalent color so it's something like celia green shade for green mm. or um drakenhof nightshade for blue it would be caraba crimson for red and then run that into the very tip as well and that, that, darker that, that does have a duller dulling effect yeah but it's all about contrast mm. and because you can't highlight it really you can add some more white in but then you still want to kind of run yeah. it down i don't know the good thing about it is because you're ultimately like washing into a gap it's quite forgiving you can kind of just wipe the whole thing out and do it yeah. again. If, if Especially if it's glazes, can. which are very thin anyway. Yeah. Like they're not going to be clogging up the detail to no. the same extent. Uh, if you look at the pro models, they're just painted <laughs> straight up like with sure the tiniest, tiniest brushes in the universe. Yeah, and the steadiest hands yeah. by the smallest people. Uh, but I am not that, so <laughs> yeah. glazes are very useful in this instance. It's definitely, it's definitely the thing about these models that I'm happy I can do to the point where it's like you get the idea of what it's supposed to look like, mm. but it's definitely the thing where I'm like, man... If I was ever going to try a competition or anything. Yeah, if I was ever going to enter a golden demon or something, yeah. this is the thing I need to get much better at, like getting right rather mm. than getting kind of table worthy. Mm. Um, I think my takeaway from from doing a lot of this stuff over the last month has been, and I think maybe I talked about this a little bit last month, but this is the month that's really hit me, was sub-assemblies. Um, we had a question last month about like, you know, how do you feel about playing without painted miniatures and we said the thing we said which is that we don't tend to play without painted miniatures at least to a greater extent yeah like not just gray plastic on a table there's something something there to give the models character because that's the purpose i would now extend the answer to say that i've realized that for my sanity painting in sub-assemblies is basically necessary hmm. like um when i did the terminators i really felt the benefit of painting in this way. So obviously painting in sub-assemblies means almost building the model as you paint it. And what I've settled on as now the way of doing Space Marines is doing legs and torsos, then arms, then weapons, then shoulder pads, then heads, then backpacks. And, and so each Marine is like seven stages, which sounds insane. But what I found is that, the, well, there's a reason that my first set of of marines the you know the tactics what i did before which i did in far fewer sub assemblies took me close to four months and the terminators which i did in about seven sub assemblies mm. took me two weeks and it's because doing sub assemblies helps you feel a sense of consistent progress i don't know if it's necessarily more efficient in the first case if not for every model it's not going to be necessarily more efficient than just having everything assembled but it allows you to finish something, move on, and it creates a sense of natural variety, but also finishedness. Because mm. you can, if you're when you're painting a model, constantly do something different to stop yourself from getting bored. But you're not going to get any closer to finish doing that. You're just going to see various parts of an unfinished model slowly kind of come together. So you might as well do, for example, all of the gold trim, all of the skin, or something like that. If you're painting in sub-assemblies, you have the satisfaction of going, okay all of the legs are done now. I never have to paint a leg again. I'm doing them to, almost to a finished state. Like sometimes I'll leave it to the point where the assemble model might get like a final round of highlights just to tie it all together. Yeah. But like basically done with every individual stage. And then you have the next bit. Um, another advantage of this, particularly with the way I've been painting the Thousand Suns with the gold base coat and then the red ink is it's allowed me with the Terminators to spray all of the weapon hands black 
which is great because that's the color that the weapons are going to be. So they just needed a bit of touching up and then painting. It was a lot faster than trying to do a black base coat over gold, yeah. which was a genuine nightmare the first time around. Mm. Um, and then the third part of it is um, I know that I'm a bit of a perfectionist and it really bothers me if I, if I know that there's like a particular angle where if you look at the model, you're going to see up through and up through a, you know, shoulder joint and see a big chunk of unpainted plastic. Mm. Um, painting a sub-assembly allows you to get to places that are just going to be really hard to reach otherwise. Yeah. Um, this is particularly true for the Tartarus pattern Terminators, which are the 30k or Terminators that come in the Burning Prospero set, where the helmet, I mean, all Terminator helmets are kind of sunk in anyway, but the these guys have like almost like a regular Space Marine helmet rather than the kind of the bulkier Terminator helmet. And it's deeply inset into a kind of the, the upper half of the power armor torso, which is massive and built in two parts where there's like, well there's the lower half uh which has the sort of the bottom of the helmet enclosure and then there's a like almost like an extra panel that goes on top mm. to fully enclose the helmet and then there are being three sub assemblies the first part of the torso the head separately and then the upper panel and the way i ended up doing it was doing the torsos with the legs like i said and then drilling holes in all the bottom of the helmets mounting them on little brass pins and painting them all separately and then um, and then after the arms and weapons were fixed, putting the, the heads into position. And the reason that's a good idea is because you can set up the arms and weapons into sort of a dynamic pose and then stick the head in mm. to make sure that the eye line of the model matches up with their weapons, which is just one of the different, it's the thing that makes a pose look good. I think is when all of, you know, suddenly the eye line makes sense when mm. it's a dynamic model. So yeah. the model I'm proudest of this with is the Terminator captain. Cause I wanted to do something a bit different with him because my, um, sergeant was already like raising his sword in the air in a kind of defiant way so i wanted the terminator sergeant to have his sword down and like be raising this like volkite pistol up and looking down it mm. like he's sort of aiming akimbo because terminators traditionally have quite static poses they tend to be like big gun in both hands yeah standing sort of stock still moving weapon emplacements yeah. yeah and i wanted this idea that sort of almost like a dynamic flourish or something in that model but that means having his head over to quite an extreme angle and so if I hadn't painted the head separately, for one thing, there's no way I'm getting access to the second half of his head. Mm. But also, if I hadn't sort of assembled the model in bits and solved the painting problem ahead of time by just painting the bits separately, when I came to put it together, I wouldn't have been able to kind of commit to that pose. Because I could have looked at it and go, well, that looks cool, but there's no way I'm getting a brush in there if it, if I paint it like this now. Mm. And then the final thing I did was um, spray the basically the Terminator lids, the thing that goes over the helmet, spray them all gold, paint the underside of them, the bit you'll never see if you look in the model. And then stick them to the top, still gold, mm. and then paint the torso again to kind of make sure it all blended together properly. And that sounds complicated, but it was so much quicker. Yeah. Like, and then there's little things like the, those Terminator shoulder pads are designed to sit quite high on the model. So you can sort of see a substantial amount of the shoulder underneath the shoulder pad. Yeah. Um, again, if you were painting that without having painted the shoulder pads separately or painted the shoulders underneath separately, mm. it would be a actual nightmare. Like there's so many fiddly angles, particularly if you go for a dynamic pose, mm. like they're basically designed to look like they kind of like rise and fall above the shoulders. Like they're sort of like dynamic flaps basically more than anything else. Yeah. Again, I, I, I can't imagine how frustrating I would have found it if mm. I'd pre-assembled those models. And as it is, I got them done to a standard that I'm happy with in like two weeks. And that is entirely because I committed to doing sub-assemblies relentlessly. Mm. And so, yeah, I couldn't advocate it enough, uh, particularly not just because of the practicality, but because of that psychological element of like, I've made progress today. Yeah. I never have to do torsos again. Mm. I never have to do heads again. 
I can point to something I finished rather than something that I've sort of just chipped away at this endless kind of mm. endless feeling task. Nice. Yeah, that's that's my tip. Top tips. I'm going to try some sort of assemblies. I've been bought some blue tack. Need to get some like little jars and use. What do you? How do you tend to? set up your sub-assemblies your little so bits so i've got two i i so yeah the thing i did was invest in new way of doing this so i have little jam jars that i bought from a kitchen shop up the road from us so mm. i can tell you where that is and they sell jam jars for 60p that nice little mini jam jars that are perfect for this and traditionally they're kind of blue tack miniatures to the base by their feet yeah um and then eventually you're going to have to take them off the base scrape the blue tack off their feet and then probably repaint their feet right because blue tack covers things and gets in the way and gets sticky and gross yeah it's not the perfect way to do it um the other way I found is I bought a small kitchen chopping board. Um, it was like four quid for this purpose, just because I wanted something I could spray paint without ruining part of the kitchen. Hmm. Um, and then I tend to, I, I, like I say, I use a drill, like a, uh, like a, just a regular pin drill and brass, little brass rods and to mount individual pieces in bobs of blue tack on this kitchen chopping board that I can then take out and spray in one big go. And then often painting them is just a case of either going down the, using the chopping board as a base mm. or, um, what I found myself doing is I paint on like a, a knife board, like a cutting craft board. The, the thing with the dark green thing with green lines, everyone has. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I'll just move the blue tack onto that and stick them to that and paint them on that because it's generally easy enough, particularly if you're painting little bits. Yeah. Because if you reduce some, some assemblies enough, then some things are just going to be one color. So it's just about giving them a coat of that thing. Mm. Um, and then in some cases, it's just a question of you spray paint them separately, but then you glue them to the model to paint them, which again, I mean, every, like I love planning these processes. I really enjoy the mm. feeling of like, this is how I'm figuring out how I'm going to do it. So every model's different, but it is just, you know, working out the practicality of like what things need to be sprayed, what color mm. and what order it makes sense to glue them together in. What's the actual thing you use to go into the blue tag to attach the model? Like if you've got sticks, uh, brass rod, brass rod. So yeah, so there's um, uh, I think it's Firestorm Games uh, who I use a lot for this stuff. They sell a kit which is a drill and a certain supply of brass rod that's the same size. Oh yeah, and that was like eight quid. Hmm. And I've still I'm still getting through that brass rod because you reuse it as well. And I've cut it, in, I've cut like a couple of rods into like inch hmm. rods that are then fine for <laughs> sticking things in. How do you glue the model end where the, the rod meets the actual thing is drill a hole cool. in the model oh right so you actually yeah so it. i mean most things so good examples of this so heads are fine because mm. they're quite thick pieces of plastic you can drill them through the neck and yeah. you're never going to ever see that because that's the point where it glues in obviously if you can drill into the um for arms and things you drill into the elbow socket because that's um sorry the shoulder socket because that's where it's going to glue in yeah. again so you'll never get to see it, it. For bolters, drill into the bar- drill into the barrel because mm. you'd be drilling out the barrel anyway. Yeah, a lot of the time, so you just drill out the barrel and then put the rod in the barrel, and then that means that the only place that isn't getting spray painted is the inside of the barrel, which is fine. Which is fine. Mm. So I found the only exception to that was the heavy bolter, mm. um, where because it, the marine tends to hold the heavy bolter quite close to their chest. Mm. On the marine side of the bolter, there is like a cartridge ejection port, so I drilled that out, and you'll never you'll never see that ever. Like if you, if you get a mag light and shine it up through the Marine's legs, you might see that there's a small hole in the mag ejection port on the bottom side of the bolt gun, but I'll take that. Yeah. It's not going to work. Yeah. So yeah, but for the most part, that just works fine. Cool. Um, you don't need, I mean, I know that, um, the other option is to lightly super glue stuff so that yeah, it'll snap that's what off. I've heard people say, but it must use leads some residue and stuff, right? Yeah. 
Um, for the most part as well, after painting and sub-assemblies, it's worth saying I tend to glue, super glue the models together rather than plastic glue them, but it varies on the model okay. and the joint. Hmm. But super glue's, because super glue tends to obviously adhere better, whereas, um, well, it doesn't adhere as well, but plastic glue melts the model. So mm-hmm. if, depending on the way it's been painted, it might fuck up the paint job if you try and plastic glue it. Yeah. Plus plastic glue can struggle to get through paint. Yeah. So you can make for a harder sticking process. So I think, I think parts of those, um, also the good thing about going with super glue is if you realize you fucked something up, you can quite easily mm. get to it before actual permanent damage is done to the model itself. Yeah. Why don't we talk about what happened when these many stage painted tiny men decided to fight each other? Perhaps. Good idea. We played the first scenario in the burning of Prospero set. Yeah. A mere year after we bought it not, not no, quite a year about six months six months okay. we got it in october okay, we got it when yeah, it came that's out. not too bad that's it not wasn't too bad, bad. It, we, we bought it the day we played our first game of age of sigmar against each other oh yeah because yeah. we went down to uh yeah, bristol and bristol yeah. yeah and and ended up picking up the set um the whole idea at the time of like i have this painted in two weeks <laughs> we'll be playing before christmas <laughs> didn't was, quite materialize no but we were distracted by sigma that's true by os yeah we were plenty of good excuses so yeah so um this is, so Burning of Prospero is the, it's sort of like the sequel to Betrayal at Kalth, which was the previous kind of standalone Horus Heresy boxed game. Mm-hmm. So while it is telling stories from the Warhammer 30k universe that have a bearing on the Warhammer 40k universe, it uses neither of the rule sets for those things. Well, it's not based on 7th edition 40k. And I don't know about you, but this is sort of like, I'd basically forgotten this. Mm. Like I, I had this huge painting project for so long. And it turned into a totally new game. Yeah, it was really exciting, actually. Yeah. And the game itself is quite lovely, I think. And quite elegant. Very easy to understand, very intuitive, and a very interesting use of a different dice system for Games Workshop. Yeah, so you build a, a sort of battlefield out of these beautiful printed cardboard tiles, basically, that have mm. squares on them. Um, and you can, you know, place down new tiles to represent cover and fallen columns and that kind of thing. Mm. The The first scenario we're doing was sort of, it's the moment that, Space Wolves arrive in, in Tizka and have to break through the defences to kind of keep murdering people, basically. That's what they're there to do. To continue to murder people. And so the the Thousand Suns player, which is me, has to stop the Space Wolf player getting any models out of the board on two specific exe... Ex- <laughs> What's, what's, what's the exit version of entry? It's <laughs> exe. Uh, exit points <laughs> on the board. Um, so it's about slowing you down. But the way the rules work is it's unlike Warhammer in that it is grid-based. It's not about measuring inches between units or anything like that. Mm. Um, there's a few, I think, let's see if you pick out anything else. The things that stood out to me about the rule set, one is, apart from the fact that it's a grid, the fact that um, after you move, you move models individually. But then those models form like a combat unit with whatever, whoever they're sharing a square with. Every square has capacity, which is like basically four big model, four, four models, but big models like Terminators and Custodes count as two. So quite a simple system, but you kind of form these kind of like combat blocks as you go, which is a kind of interesting idea because we have this idea from other Games Workshop games that a unit is a unit. This tactical squad is a unit. It doesn't just mix in with some Terminators or anything like that. Yeah. And that's kind of an interesting idea. And the other thing that struck out to me is how their spellcasting system works which is also hmm. kind of interesting. Was there anything else that stood out to you about how the rules fit together at um, the top level? Both of those and the, the sort of the change in variance that a different dice system offers, particularly mm. when um, 
a crit is a six, but you could be rolling a d6 or a d8 or a d12. Yeah. And how that functions, like, in terms of chance and, you know, opportunities. That's the other interesting. So we're used to thinking of weapons having, like, to hit values. So this hits on a three, this hits on a four up, that kind of thing. Yeah. The way it works in Burning Prospero is weapons have an associated dice. So a regular bolt gun is a d6, a plasma gun is a d8, a heavy bolter is a d10. And then you roll you roll those dice equal to whoever's in that combat block. So if it's three regular Marines with bolt guns and a Marine with a heavy bolter, it's 3d6 and a d10. Mm. And then the defender, regardless of how many miniatures are defending, rolls a dice for each incoming attack. Um, and then they can upgrade those dice based on the armor being worn. So like Terminators get D10 armor mm. against one of those attacks, depending on how many models are in the unit. It's, it's, it's very intuitive, but there's slightly more to it than just yeah. rolling a set amount of dice. But then all that matters is not hitting a particular value. It's rolling more than rolling higher than the other guy. Mm. So if you're rolling a dice with more sides, you obviously have more chances to get a higher number, but that's all that matters. Yeah. And I've not seen another system do that, make the actual dice itself the measure of the upgrade, not what value you have to hit. Yeah, it makes for these really interesting uh sort of army cards so each army has uh a card and all of the units are on that card like it's, it's double-sided but it means that when you have like a, a flamer and you just have all you have next to it is the type of dice it needs and that just sucks all uh, a lot of the kind of fiddliness out of an aos style system or a kind of war scroll based or you know yeah. a, a book based system and says it's just a dice off but we're going to use the different types of dice to actually create the statistical uh, biases that makes one thing more powerful than another. Yeah, it's interesting because it's it's a, it's a more elegant way of... Also, it's more... I mean, to go all the way back to what we were talking about, um, Rune Wars, it's more immediately visible. Like, mm. my gun is more powerful because I'm suddenly rolling a 10-sided dice rather mm. than a 6-sided dice, rather than, oh, it's important that I hit on a hit on a 3-up and wound on a 3-up as opposed to hit on a four wound on a five or whatever it is like mm. uh, that system has its place. And I can imagine this getting very cumbersome if you were to do it at any greater scale, yeah, it's kind sure. of like squad based urban combat that this is designed for, but it's a really refreshing change. I think the both the increased fluidity and also the increased visibility of, of how it resolves. And combining that with the rule that allows, um, all space means basically they shed all their wounds every time. Oh yeah. Uh, and so that kind of mitigates spikes a little bit so mm. you know you can get a lot of damage done to one unit but um it only really has an effect on the unit if it kills people outright and doing like four damage into Gigor the general is is quite a task you actually need to focus fire with a lot of different things and that involves a lot of maneuvering yeah uh, and that's it's just really i think it's just really really interesting i can't wait to play with more units and yeah know, on bigger that, that that's maybe worth reiterating so when you when a unit takes damage you assign a wound token to it and obviously yeah. everything has a total health value that means it's dead if if it takes damage equal to its health value mm. however at the end of every round so after every combat round is finished all wound tokens get removed mm. so anyone who hasn't died goes back to full health and that sounds a bit mad from a war game point of view when you're used to the idea that things take damage over time but it's really interesting it totally fits the fantasy Absolutely. of how space yeah. marines operate mm. they're supposed to be almost indestructible till they die mm. and so um and it's, a, yeah, I really like that as an idea because it creates this, um, well, we'll get to it, but moments of sort of drama and horror when if you haven't done just enough to kill someone, they're back, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. And it makes the space marines really dangerous. Like if you don't kill Gigor outright, he, when he attacks back, it's 
he just ripped apart two space marines. And in my head, that's exactly what would happen in the fiction is they don't gun him down properly. He gets into them. Yeah. And, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's an amazing, it's a fantastic merging fiction and, and mathematical rule set. So we should get into how this sort of pans out. So, um, because, so my force for this was a full tactical squad of veterans mm-hmm. and a single Terminator captain. Um, which in terms of, um, squares occupied is exactly three because it's uh, 10 models for the tactical squad and then the mm-hmm. terminator counts as two so it's 12 total four per square um you had your full tactical squad Gygor, who's the space wolf leader with his little knife and a sister superior who's the leader of a squad of sisters of silence which is also 12 basically exactly so in yeah. terms of bases function is 12 even though it's 11 bases for me just one of them is a double base um, and I had three positions to deploy in and you had to deploy in like a kind of tight L shape in the corner of the board. So I sort of spread out around the board, flanking the different exit points that you could be trying to get to. And you were in a big wedge when you were deploying. Did you have like a particular strategy in mind, like something you wanted to it do? It was pretty much to load up one exit. I think I I was slightly lucky because I, you deployed first as you know, the scenario demanded so I could see where uh, your Terminator was and where I think I thought I could break through if I had a really strong combat unit backed up by a shooter unit, uh, which is why I ended up uh, putting all of my combat veterans into one square squad block and using that as a kind of vanguard and then putting loads of shooting behind it, thinking that if I could just overload the flank of weaker warriors, I could break through and avoiding the Terminator as much as possible, really. Yeah, so I had the thought that because I the way the deployment works out one of the one of the de, one of the exit points has two deployment zones quite near, near to it, and the other one has one. Mm. So I put the Terminator, the uh, a legionnaire with a um, legionary uh, vexilia, which is basically the banner, which gives them some rerolls, and a another legionary with a melter gun, so like a short range, powerful weapon, on that one, mm. on the on the, the lone exit point. So that if you rushed that one. Um, you'd have more resistance there. And if you didn't, then I'd have this quite dangerous unit that could flank you. And then I sort of loaded up, um, the rest of my Marines, including the, the sergeant on the other two hmm. with the sergeant closest to you. Um, the, so the way it works from a, so the, the thing that I think most, apart from the fact that each faction has to access the different units, the thing that most notably makes them different is magic. So that the Thousand Sons are psychers and they have access to these kind of like mad psychic powers and the space will start at all. Mm. So the way that works is um, at the start of the game, I get three spells basically that are associated with the particular cult that's taking place in this, taking part in this mission. And so this one, it's Pavoni, which is the cult that's most associated with like biomancy and like mutation and regeneration and that kind of thing. And then I draw two more spells at random. Well, in fact, I got you to draw them for me from mm. the deck, like to make sure it was completely random. Um, the way, um, and then when, when I got those random spells, I saw that one of them I'd received is from like the Pyri cult, which is the fire cult, basically. And it's this thing called like firewall, which does what you'd expect. It creates a wall of flame that makes a area impassable for a turn. And I immediately saw how powerful this would be because I could see what you'd done with your deployment. Mm. Even though it happened after my deployment, you had this sort of tip of the spear with Gygor and the, Sister of Silence and the, uh, the sergeant with the thunder hammer. Yeah. Um, but they were squashed in between the edge of the board and a fallen pillar mm. or like some debris. So if I could block that passageway, 
you'd be forced to go around with all of them, which gives me time to kind of consolidate a firing solution because I realize that I have to get close to you. Mm. And so that first turn, the first thing that happens is spell casting. And that first turn, I realized like this is a game changer if I can get this wall to fire off. But the way spellcasting works is really interesting. So like in AOS or anything else, it's you roll two dice. If you get above a certain amount, the spell is cast. The other player can try and unbind it by rolling two dice and trying to get a better score. The way this works is basically like Space Wizard top trumps. Yep. So I have a warp deck of cards that have numbers on them, and you have a willpower deck of cards that have numbers on them. And taking it in turn, starting with me, we draw a card and add it to a pile, and the next person draws a card and add it to a pile. And on a simple level, after each of us has drawn three cards, the person with more numbers wins. If you win, the spell isn't cast. If I win, the spell is cast. But each of them has, a lot of them have complicating factors on them, which are really interesting. Yeah. So like the fact that you had a Sister of Silence on the board who's supposed to dampen psychic energy meant that some of your cards were just worth more. Mm. And that was really... Really so, powerful early on. Some of them have really interesting decisions on them. So it could be like this card is worth zero or two. Um, if you select zero and kind of sacrifice this, then if you succeed in this counter, the, the magic phase ends immediately. Yeah. So you're taking this gamble and saying, okay, maybe Chris has drawn <clears throat> two ones for his psychic power to try and cast this. Um, and I've drawn a one and now this zero card. Maybe I take the zero and gamble on getting maybe a two or three next turn to win. And if I win, that ends the phase completely. And yeah, Chris can't really cast powerful. any more spells. So yeah. I can cast up to three, which yeah. is, but I can't try and cast the same one twice, mm. which is a really powerful kind of thing. Mm. And there's there's some for the Thousand Suns, which are like you can um, you can <clears throat> choose to this is worth one or it's worth automatically succeeding. But if you choose automatic success, the the phase just ends. Yeah. So you give up on your other spellcasting attempts. So there's, there's, um, even though it's a, you know, I call it top trumps. It's, it's the, it's the, you know, the, the definition of a random system of drawing cards to determine success. Mm. You get these moments of interesting decisions and there's actually genuine drama just because you're not rolling a dice. You're both drawing a card <laughs> and right. it's tense, like knowing how much can ride on this. And we'll, we'll get to how much can ride on that. <laughs> yeah. Especially because the spells are <clears throat> like really well balanced. Like they, they all seemed like considerably game affecting you know yeah they didn't seem like duff spells maybe there was just one that you just didn't use as much um so the spells i had were i had the ability to give a the casting unit and a free attack basically during that phase mm. which is powerful given that what wounds need to all take place within the same turn to kill yeah. something that's yeah. very powerful i had one that allowed me to do a free movement so a free attack and a free movement are kind of obvious things mm. i had a kind of chain lightning attack that i would subsequently cast later which does a fairly not a it does a D8 attack, so it's more powerful than normal, but it's not amazing. And then it, but it also hits any units adjacent to the one that it hits. I had the ability to resurrect a dead person, hmm. but only into a unit that had space on its tile, which is a really interesting restriction. Yeah. And I had the firewall, which because this was so much about stopping you getting places, felt like the the most the, useful the one. one. Yeah. Long story short, so that firewall failed, hmm. which is a really big problem because I knew that then you could charge me. So then. Um, the unit closest to you did succeed in casting the spell that gave them a free move to move all the way to the back of the board. Yeah. Because I knew that I would need a good turn of shooting at you before you could get to me in combat because that's where Space Wolves are good. <laughs> but then Gygor said no. Yeah. Um, Gygor has a special rule that means if he ends up in combat, he can move three squares instead of two, the normal two. Uh, so he uh, did this, the correct Space Wolf thing and just 
uh, outpaced all of his fellow squad and went solo into that unit. And uh, it was a, a bloody good Ripped time. to pieces. Him. He killed <laughs> yeah. two Astartes in the first. His first move was just to brutally dismember two yeah. Astartes, which is, you know, perfect for him. Like, and, and in response in that combat phase, I did the thing that kind of made sense, which was just pour fire into this kind of like mad charging helmetless <laughs> yeah. space wolf bastard that had just killed two people. <laughs> And I think I succeeded in doing two wounds to him or three wounds to him in that turn. But of course, because all the wounds get reset at the end, that wasn't enough. And it meant that I hadn't been shooting at everyone else coming up behind him. Mm. So he'd basically done, it's a very thematic thing. He'd soaked up all of that fire coming in and functionally like almost brought the front line to me. Mm. By the time the next turn. Which is pure Space Wolves. I mean, that that was the moment where I was like, oh, this rule set really represents what the Space Wolves are about. Um, and the fact that, you know, his, the other close combat guys he was with had to catch up with him because his, his battle lust and his frenzy to get to the front line was so great that, you know, he just tossed aside all thought for his own personal safety just for the, yeah. to get into the thick of it. Um, but then of course you're right, you know, the rest of my troops moved up and there was like supporting five. I think you back. lost one Marine to yeah. shooting. Yeah. So it, it was, it was, I think you were unlucky with your spells early in the game. But what really lost you the game was the initiative rolls. Spoilers. Uh, <laughs> but even for the first few turns, like... I yeah, so I did lose initiative both times. But, like, so what was interesting was, so you did lose one guy that mm. first turn, and that was because of a fucking downtown shot from my <laughs> yeah, Marine with the Legion Vexilia. So if you... Uh, Marines have two health, and bolt guns do one damage by default. Yeah. But any any weapon that gets a score of six or higher, which is obviously easier if you're rolling a D8 or a D10, has the potential to do double damage. And therefore kill a marine in one shot, and I managed to get a natural six with a bolt gun shot and yeah. just kill, kill a marine on yeah. the other side of the board, which was nice. Off. That was my only upshot in the first turn. Yeah. But yeah, the second turn, um, I hit a problem, which is that I couldn't resurrect anyone that had died because my entire kind of like little command group got wiped out. So I was down to it's the uh, it was the skeletons don't come back if four of them die at once <laughs> issue that has haunted me twice this month. Laughing at earlier, but yeah, actually it does exist in this game. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is uh, because I had no unit I could cast things with and add things to. Hmm. Um, I think this is one of my big mistakes is I kept my guys as powerful feeling blocks of four, whereas there's no reason you can't just occupy... You could, you could occupy four different squares with one group of four people, obviously. Yeah. And that is still blocking those squares to the enemy they're just a lot less powerful in combat mm. but also then only one of them has to fight in combat the others get to shoot absolutely which is again a really interesting strategic thing this idea to keep everyone in these like chunky blocks really hurt me because also spells are cast by those blocks and so if i only had two blocks as i did at the start of the second turn oh, you yeah. succeeded in wiping out one block mm. i only got two spell casts and neither of them could be resurrect so i went for one of them which was to get a free attack um I succeeded, but the attack didn't do any damage. Hmm. And then the other group cast Chain Lightning, which I think did hurt Geigor, actually. Um, but not a lot. But, you know, but no. because he'd lost all of his wounds from the previous turn, it wasn't enough to kind of slow his no. kind of merciless revenge. Yeah. So the, the second turn was kind of an interesting... You repositioned quite a lot in order to get ready to... Because, hmm. I mean, bear in mind, like, your victory condition is get any unit off the board. So your repositioning was basically to just move everything into position to crush the one unit standing <laughs> in front of you in one exit. Yes. Yeah, the um the poor Space Marines, uh, the poor Thousand Suns at least, uh, I think there were four of them, but they were facing like Gygor, uh, a Sister of Silence, Space Marine, uh, like uh, Captain with uh, Thunder Hammer, 
they just lined up right opposite them. And then the other guys basically just moved up. So they were out of sight of the Terminator squad that was flanking, uh, but still able to shoot the poor remaining doorkeepers. Um, so it was, it was about executing those people. And then I, um, moved up my third block of four up as a kind of blocking squad, basically to put them into the middle of the board to stop the Terminators from getting into close combat at all yeah, with, yeah. with the rest of them. What was really interesting is, I mean, so that first melee attack, because the attacking, the person with initiative, which was you for both first times, which is one of those things that went a bit south for me, but, yeah. um, gets to pick the first unit to engage in combat, but after that, take, you take it in turns mm. and you engage with your melee units. And I think you got three crits, mm. which is how you ended up killing three of them in one yeah, go. Because there were four brutal. Marines there and you killed three of them immediately. It's because, um, so Guy Gore is on like a D12 or something attacking and he gets to attack twice. Um, which I probably got to do, but oh well. Uh, and the sister spear is in like a D8 or something. Yeah, yeah. Sword. So they're all on like, they're all on more than D6. It's a, strate- it's a statistically likely crit, yes. basically. Yeah. So like it, when people say crit normally, it means, oh, you got really lucky there, but actually you've, with the dice, when the dice are big yeah. and you stack them in that way, then you're getting those crits. But you know, I've discovered that D10s can still roll twos. <laughs> you really can. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you um, really can. One in 10, turns out. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, on a D10, it's only 40% likely that mm. you're going to do it, right? Like, that's still... Yeah, that's why I swear, it's going to be really interesting to kind of get used to that maths. <laughs> or the kind of, not maths really, but the the way luck works in that game. Like, a, a miss could be unlike, it's more, almost like the crit chance is as important as hitting mm. in some ways. Um, especially because uh, a space marine has two health. Yeah. And that crit gets rid of a whole body. So it's those crits that are really essential to wiping out a squad. Yeah. So yeah. it's just it's really an interesting. interesting thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that attack left one Marine with a heavy bolter who could fire back, but facing everything. Mm. So, um, he didn't survive. And obviously I was struggling to bring up my other squad to basically stop you. Um, I didn't have a choice about having a squad off to the side because of the number of deployment zones and how many men I had. Yeah. Um, but the question is, like, how quickly could I have brought them around? Redeployed in, into multiple squares. Or, yeah, yeah. Mm. Or, or use one of the spells to get them in faster, which I could have done. Oh, yeah. Once I knew you weren't interested in a particular direction. Mm. So, yeah, there's definitely interesting decisions I could have made. Um, but one thing I realized was that based on the move I'd done that turn. Um, so after you kill that squad, Gygor, the Sister of Silence, and the Sergeant with the Thunderhammer were in front of the exit. And you can move two squares in a turn, which means that you were, you know, if we were being cynical, we could have called it there. Because mm. it's like, as long as you get to the movement phase, you are out. You're done. Yeah. Right. You've won. But then I realized that the Terminator unit that was had survived was still in, was five squares away from the exit square. And that's the range you need to cast firewall. So I realized if I can cast firewall, I can block that exit. And if I can cast it every turn, I can block that exit forever, hypothetically. Yes. If I can win the top trumps. And on the next turn, I did win the top trumps for the firewall, which succeeded in blocking you. Hmm. Um, and then I won the initiative, which is very crucial, because it allowed me to um, move my Terminator Sergeant up and block you with him and then engage at range with the remaining surviving Marines behind him. Yeah. And I think on that turn, I managed to take your blocking unit down to two Marines, like kill another couple. Mm. And obviously your, your soldiers at this point were blocking, blocking themselves. So you couldn't rearrange them very much, which is kind of an interesting thing that like I'd pinned you against yourself because you had that wedge constructed. Yeah. 
there was no way for you to get Gigor in, for example, because no. the Marines were all crammed together. And also, most of them didn't have line of sight because you were stuck around corners and things. So that's kind of an interesting strategic thing that, like, even though I was massively outnumbered, I could hold up a much bigger formation just by hitting it in the right place. Yeah. I mean, admittedly, it was the only place I could hit it, so it wasn't, like, strategic genius or anything. It was just, it mm. gummed up your works, like, pinning you on both sides, one side with magic fire and then the other side with a big, shiny red man. That's how thousands of do. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and... I had this thought then that like, I can still do this because I can resurrect people. And now that I've split the group up a bit, I can resurrect people into those units. It's, it's only one model a turn, hmm. but everything hinges on me keeping the firewall up technically. Hmm. And so turn after that, you, you failed to kill the Terminator, which demonstrated like you poured a lot of fire into that Terminator and you just didn't die. Cause yeah, which is why I didn't line up against him in the first place. Yeah. That's why I stacked the odds. Against if we them. were to play that scenario again, hmm. I would, put the Terminator closer to you at the start in yeah. a kind of like, hey. Very hard to deal with that Terminator. So, I mean, he's only got two health, but his um, armor, he's rolling at a D10. D10. Yeah. Makes a huge difference. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and um, so in the turn after that, <clears throat> I went for the firewall again. Because if I can get the firewall again, then you still have to deal with me mm. and you can't go out through the other door because I'm blocking it. Um, and that was a really close one. That was a really close one. That was like five to six or something. Yeah, it was close. But I failed. So the firewall didn't go off. But then I realized that I, um, but I think one of the cards you chose was like, if you use, if you treat this as its higher value and you block the spell, I get an extra spell. So it was like, you can gamble on, which is an, again, a really interesting decision. You can gamble on giving me an extra spell as long as, mm. um, you you know you take it for that thing which is probably worth it because blocking me from stopping you getting out is is one of the most important things to do yeah but um with the extra spell cast i was able to uh, resurrect my um tactical marine sergeant mm. into the terminator unit uh because this you know as you said at the time there's definitely nothing suspicious or chaosy about that <laughs> <laughs> he just came back to life it's fine <laughs> totally above board he was sleeping yeah he was very sleepy from bullets <laughs> um but he's fine now and then um to cast the spell that gave give them an extra attack like technically i don't know if i think that is doable because i think the only limitation is you can't attack you can't cast the same spell twice not that you can't cast with the same oh, unit yeah. twice which might have been That's a mistake that i made worked. earlier when i didn't cast the third time mm. um but yeah so i gave them an instant attack and the thought was uh the terminator captain and the the um sergeant both have power swords if they can both get crits on D8s and kill the two Marines in front of them, yeah. then there's a rule called press the attack, which means that if you wipe out an enemy in melee combat, you immediately move into the space they occupied. If I immediately move into the space they occupied, you can't move because I'm pinning both of your other units by being there, yeah. which again stops you from getting off the board, even though the firewall has failed. Mm. So I had this narrow, narrow chance of like, I have to get two crits because I have to do enough damage to kill two Marines. But it was the sort of the tantalizing thing of like, I can just still stop you if, if everything goes perfectly. But then I rolled two threes. <laughs> yeah. And you saved both of them. Yeah. So. They it, were fine. Yeah, they were fine. And, and nothing happened. And at that point, uh, during the movement phase, there was nothing stopping Guy Gore from just running happily into Tisca to murder more innocent people. I do like the idea that the fire exit caught fire. 
uh, yes that story. <laughs> I think I said at the time like well let's call the burning of Prospero <laughs> well, <laughs> if I hadn't burned anything yet then it would have been a failure um, but it was a really interesting ending because like even though it felt like it was over because I got crushed quickly and admittedly this is like the fastest battle report we've done in mm. on this pod um, there were so many little moments towards the end that felt like it could have turned mm. that I'm excited to see how those other scenarios resolve and also a completely different game if you'd have had a, a initiative role earlier on like you're uh, be able to position and block me a little bit more effectively would have changed the how that entire scenario played out. Yeah, it's very yeah, replayable. Sure. I think like it, you could replay it, but well, first of all, knowing how the rules work and stuff, but also with a different spell law, um, and just your abilities to organically redeploy units into different squads as you move across the board is just really interesting. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited to try it again. Actually, yeah, yeah, like that's still all the kind of canon outcome. And as you said at the time, it makes sense that I mean, quote unquote, historically. <laughs> Space Wars win <laughs> in Prospero, right? Like it's called the burning of Prospero, not like the most, most, but mostly burning of Prospero, some unburned. Yeah, I think I felt like the Snarrows definitely waited against uh, the Zinchian forces. Uh, though they're not Zinchian fully yet. Not uh, yet. Against not the yet. Thousand Suns. Not until Magnus says, I really need a way off this planet. <laughs> hey Zinch, how about it? Uh, so I felt like it was deliberately wasted a bit against the Thousand Suns, and it would have been embarrassing if the space walls had failed to get through the door <laughs> to the entire campaign. Uh, and the, the guy goal kind of bust through is kind of cool as well. Like, uh, I'm starting to like him just for his rules as much as anything. Yeah. Else. Yeah. He's kind of coming alive. Like I, I'm now excited to have Armin kind of come and. Yeah. I think the, the magic, I think surely he's going to have a load of magic buffs and stuff. that are going to make your magic. Armin gets a bonus. I think you draw an extra card. If okay. Armin is in that unit, mm. like you just draw again and yeah. there's nothing you can do about it. That's like, nice. Yeah. That's good. Um, yeah, he does. And there's one of the cards that reacts specifically to Armin being there. Mm. So like, um yeah it's exciting because he's on his way and you know the next i think the next scenario we're going to play is all sisters of silence versus Armin and terminators so it's much smaller units like smaller model count oh is it just sisters of silence? it's just sisters oh, versus cool. Armin and terminators huh. and it's the one like so the way it works is there are six scenarios and the first and the final one hmm. i haven't looked up what the final one is apart from the fact that it's called will of the primarchs and I think it takes place as Lehman Russ and Magnus are oh, fighting, man, which awesome. is fucking rad. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, like I just got the kind of nerd goosebumps from <laughs> just saying that, really. Um, and um, Forge World models. Yeah, and sit them off to the side of the table. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've, oh, they've just um, announced the uh, Forge World Magnus. Forge World Magnus looks fantastic. Yeah, and yeah. it's on sale at Warhammer Fest. Yeah, and what a fabulous red man he is. <laughs> Beautiful red man. <laughs> They're all gorgeous. I guess we established. <laughs> all the Primarchs are fucking smoking hot. Yeah. The Emperor's good boys. Uh, and bad boys as well. Oh yeah. To be fair, the bad boys are even better. Ten out of twenty <laughs> of them are bad boys. <laughs> um, the um, but yeah. So the the first and the last one are kind of set in sequence, but the other five are relatively. Sorry, the other four are relatively fluid. Yeah. So the next one we're doing them based on how which which models we've finished. But the next one I think is supposed to be like the the psychic battle of wills between Magnus and his inner circle versus oh, yeah. the sisters of silence. That, sorry, Armin and the sisters of silence are being sent explicitly to shut that shit the hell down yeah interesting um i built all my sisters of science as purely close combat which may have been foolish <laughs> because i like the look of the swords so we'll see how that pans out in that scenario <laughs> i thought about doing my terminators in a more like one because you can build them with dual lightning claws or a mixture of weapons and i decided i just wanted a bit of everything yeah that's good so like good one of them's got like a reaper auto cannon which is the biggest gun in the world <laughs> yeah it's amazing and then, so um yeah my original plan was to try and feel the sisters of science and gold armor uh, in AOS as a, a kind of auxiliary, uh, um, 
Stormcast Force or something I could put into my Stormcast army in some way. But they're so small and the uh, proportions are so different from uh, 30k to AOS that it just looks stupid yeah they so, are tiny like, they are, yeah so yeah that's what they've all got swords now i actually thought about using a sister of silence as a fate master for a zinch army with zinch bits basically oh yeah so i like the idea of trying to find a way of putting a, a female character into a zinch army like i've decided that my sangor shaman is female but it's because it's impossible to tell because it's a bird person <laughs> and you know mutants are easy to you know decide one way or the other but I like the idea of having like a kind of gold armored figure on a disc of Zinch with a glaive. Oh, as yeah, like I can a kind see that. of. Yeah. Um, but she's just, they're just so small. Mm. Like I may end up using the 40k Ironman model as a fate master for AOS with, with conversions. Obviously, yeah. Yeah. That could work. Yeah. Because it kind of looks right. Like the, the fate master model as it is is super old. Um, but yeah, also it's just a way of getting Ironman everywhere. Love Ironman. Has he got a, does he point as in the 40k? He has, um, it's a really, so, um, 30k Ironman is pointing. Yeah. Um, 40k Ironman has a staff in one hand and his other hand is like, it's actually in a sort of like a crook, like a kind of, actually it's exactly the play, handily, it's exactly how you'd be holding a shield. It's exactly that ah, kind of elbow okay. shape, but he's, he's got it open. It's like trailing warp flame, right. which is a really cool mm. look. Um, what I would probably do, cause the, um, the fate master should have burning weapons is replace the staff with a glaive, probably from the Zangor kit. Or just ahead of the staff with a blade, so it becomes a glaive. Yeah, and maybe do some green stuff fire for that, and then put one of the spares angle shields over the warp flame, and then build the warp flame around it. No, oh, that's cool. Yeah, like that might work quite well. Because yeah, also, cool. I mean, he's wearing such heavy robes that you can't really see the space marine armor. Hmm. I'd need to do something to replace his backpack because the space mm-hmm. marine backpack is the thing that really gives him away. But it could look pretty good. I don't know. That's a like I haven't practiced in doing a fate master for that army for a while so that's a that's a future thing also by that point i may have decided that new 40k is out and i want to do thousand sun so i'll yeah. just do ironman as ironman but hmm. my boy the sad librarian he's awesome yeah. <laughs> poor sad librarian yeah everything goes badly for him it does their story's so good and um, i'm very impressed with the prospero set yeah me too um both the models and the game and yeah surprising the game actually so We'll probably have more battle reports. Yeah, it feels like the kind of thing where it'd be fun to play that couple of battles back to back. Like yeah, we played yeah. that first scenario and it's just like, okay, yeah, next. Like, mm. but yeah, I'm definitely impressed by it. I think it'd be a good entry point to the, uh, well, we might get to this with questions, which brings us on to the next section of the pod, but it feels like, yeah, they're doing a good job furnishing you with different ways into this fiction. And mm. that is a full game for two people. It doesn't have the flexibility of the war game in that you can't just expand it out forever and keep adding new things. But it's still, you know, like a, a, an accessible way into that universe that practically comes with terrain because you're playing on these cardboard bases, that kind of yeah. thing. It's um, a really high quality set that reminds me of the uh, Space Hulk Wii release they did, mm. where all of the like board pieces for the Space Hulk Wii release are laminated, embossed, just the as good quality cardboard board pieces as you could hope for, really, with great art. Um, yeah. This is no different. Yeah, the art looks great. We've got some, there'll be photos in the blog post, so it's accompanying it, but mm. yeah, they, those models looked good fighting on that piece of cardboard. <laughs> they did. They did. The burning of cardboard continues <laughs> next month, maybe. Should we do some, some questions from Minish's questions? Yeah, let's do it. You got a few this week. Um, uh, Peter Fienia did write in to ask us, would we play new Warhammer 40k? And if so, which armies would we play? But the answer to that is very much answered and is obviously <laughs> yes, but I wanted to give him a, 
a brief shoot out because obviously he uh, he took the time to to write in to ask us something that it turned out was going to be extremely relevant. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I don't think he should be. Uh, Does he know something we didn't? I don't think he should be punished simply for. Um, Is he a ancient wizard? Yeah, for asking the most relevant question mm. around. Nonetheless, all right. So the first question comes from Isaac, who has a, has a bone to pick with me. Oh no, specifically. And I, you know, well, I might hold my own with this. We'll find out. Isaac writes, "You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means." Quoting the Princess Bride. In the last podcast, Chris described the swirly magical vortex thing that the Celestin Prime stands on as an orrery. I believe he's also used the word orrery in this sense a couple of other times on Crate and Crowbar. So I have written to offer a clarification. An orrery is a mechanical model of the solar system named after the fourth Earl of Orrery, for whom the first modern orrery was created. It has literally no other meaning. For future reference, here is the one Warhammer model which could be accurately described as containing an orrery, and he links to the uh, Celestial Huracanum, which is an em- old empire magic chariot cannon mm. thing. I probably used chariot incorrectly there. <laughs> it's probably technically... There aren't any horses on it's probably, Yeah, it's probably technically a carriage, and I apologize to carriage ha- specific... Have you made an errory? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I might wrap this one up. But yeah. um, anyway, Isaac continues... Please stop using it in any other context. Um, I'm aware this is the most pedantic of points to make, but it grates so much every time Chris does this. <laughs> in all other respects, the new podcast is very good. In, in all, all other respects. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Um, and he does have a question, but I just wanted to respond to this by saying, I get where you're coming from. I understand that uh, in this case, the word does have a specific technical meaning that um, has a bearing on on its uh, technically correct use. However, a fun thing about language is words can often be used to describe something by alluding to something that they're a bit like in this specific way. I'm going to be pedantic now as someone who's sort of into language. Um, it's in this way that language gains its fluidity. And so if you say that somebody is standing on an orrery and they're not literally standing on a uh, model of the solar system, but saying that gives the listener or reader or whoever a semi-accurate, you know, imaginative sense of the thing you're getting at then that use of language has been successful regardless of whether or not you're technically correct the purpose of language is to communicate information not to adhere to a set kind of schema of technical accuracy however on behalf of any orrery enthusiast that was badly thrown off by my incorrect technical use of the term then i do apologize <laughs> i am imagining the uh, the prime standing on a, a- an historical orrery now and it's a very yeah. silly image in my it is a silly image. i mean admittedly that, that it could is, happen in there, that is that is a fair point that you know if you if the mental image that was conjured was of someone stood on a model of the solar <laughs> system then yeah i appreciate that's not accurate if if however the the well obviously the intent and intent only matters to a certain extent but the intent was to conjure the image of someone standing on a swirling model of space which is is kind is what of what it is. it is yeah yeah so i mean admittedly i you know uh I would say that from a purely linguistic point of view, trying to ground the definition of a word purely in its historical context is extremely flimsy. If we were going to get technical about it, you mm. probably couldn't. That wouldn't fly. Um, it would rotate around in a circle forever, <laughs> much like an orrery. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I, I think we we had described what that thing was also in the podcast. Like we'd said it was a swirly space vortex, I think. Yeah. Something like that. Uh, I mean, it and sounds like Isaac substitute- is specifically sensitive about the misuse of the word orrery, <laughs> which I, I get. I, I find it quite endearing. I like that. Yeah. I mean, you know, there, you know, 
people people have their linguistic bugbears and there's nothing wrong with that except linguistically that's incorrect so um <laughs> what, what's his question his question is uh this is the, <laughs> um is tom's current victory streak a product of better luck his superior tactical ability or is the aos meta balanced in favor of the stormcast or space marine style lower model count elite armies in general how do you both feel about the meta more generally? Games Workshop is pretty notorious for being incapable of creating a balanced meta game. A balanced meta game, I mean, not balanced meta game. And having never actually played AOS, I was wondering if this trend is carried over to the new system. Yours, Isaac. I would say that um, the matchup of our current forces is heavily balanced in my favour because Chris hasn't built a lot of the new stuff uh, <laughs> that comes with the Zinch book that would make his army really formidable. <laughs> so Chris has got some uh, Skyfires and some Zangor, and they synergize really, really well with the new rule set. And without a lot of that stuff, Chris is just lacking some fundamental ways to stop me. I'm extremely glass cannony at the moment. Yeah. And it's that thing of you have specifically an army that is very good at shrugging off big hits, yeah. which is what I do. And it's, it's interesting because like I, I win all the time against Chris and I lose all the time against my friend Chimp who has a flesh eater courts army because uh, my army is very bad at dealing with horde armies and also uh, I kind of suck. <laughs> so it's definitely not general membership because when I'm against like a, a more competitive matchup, I, I'm, I'm quite bad. Um, so, but there's, there's definitely a kind of inequality in build structure at the moment between our armies, which is why I think why we've gone to play Prospero for a bit while we both kind of change our armies and build new things and then reconvene with new forces that hopefully might redress the balance a little bit. Um, but those games like have all been fun irrespective. Yeah, of yeah, they've all been fun. Like, they've all been narratively rewarding. Yeah, for sure. Um, like I think, um, yeah, in terms of the metagame more generally, AOS is an interesting case because obviously if you play Tournament Age of Sigma, which I'm not interested in, um, there are things that are very good. There are, there's definitely tiers. Um, I don't necessarily think that it's a, it's the ideals of balance where anything can work. Um, particularly because the rule set is so big and so broad and so loose. Like 40k. I think maybe this is a problem, not necessarily with Games Workshop specifically as a company, but the type of game they make where there are a bajillion units and mm. a bajillion different interlocking rules and spells and things. And all those things are there to reward people for collecting more and building an army that suits them on a positive. So on a cynical level, it's rewards people for having more stuff on a, on a positive level. It rewards people for customizing their stuff, which is after all what it's about. That's where the satisfaction comes from. The problem with that is it's so open that cheese is just going to be there somewhere. Stuff's going to be weird. Uh, we were talking about this before we recorded, but actually my army is very competitively viable. If I decided to build it and play it in a certain way, Yeah because of a mad, mad, obviously unintentional cheese thing that you can do with a powerful Zinch unit called the Skyfire, which is a archer, a Sangor beastman archer standing on a disc of Zinch. And they can fly around, they can shoot things, shooting is very powerful in AOS. They have a, like a 16-inch flying move, hmm. so they can get anywhere they want. They can shoot people, they can kite units, that kind of thing, Um which is fine. That's not necessarily a pattern of itself, but one of the things about this, which is weird, is... A little quirk of the way those keywords that we mentioned earlier are written is that any unit that has a disc of Zinch gets the demon keyword because the disc itself is a demon. doesn't matter who's standing on the disc, mm. they get the demon keyword. But unfortunately, this means that units that probably shouldn't get to interact with some of the demon-specific spells. So there is a spell called Fold Reality that is intended, obviously, for bringing demons back to life. And when you say demons in the context of a Zinch army, you were talking about pink horrors, flamers, screamers, 
maybe chariots. Um, but they're rarely run in a unit. And things like flamers are up-costed points-wise enough that the ability to summon them back with a spell is potentially very powerful. Mm. It's kind of obvious that no one playtested the scenario where someone's using fold reality to bring skyfires back to life on the basis that the disc, not the rider, has the demon keyword, <laughs> which is the kind of thing that creeps in when the game is this broad. Yeah, that every single unit has its own war scroll, which is basically a page of rules yeah. full of specific rules to them. And a lot of them are keyword activated, and there are probably like a thousand of them now. <laughs> uh, well, hundreds, certainly hundreds. And when you have that going on, like, no, like you could have the, an enormous team of people combing through all of this, and, and they're, they're not going to find the outlying kind of, uh, quirks that make truly competitive lists sing. Uh, they're just not going to find it. The crowd finds that. So, you know, when it's suddenly released to the public and, you know, thousands of people are playing it, they will find it because they have the resource to do it, but the actual, uh, producers of the game doesn't. And that's just, uh, an offshoot of the fact of that, that form of rules making. Like if you get yeah. a, every time you draw up a new war scroll, it's interacting with an increasingly vast combination of ever growing rule sets that, yeah. And you, you can't balance that. In GW's defense, the, the system works fine. If you concentrate on building and playing with the units you think are interesting mm. and that you want to collect and you and your friends agree not to be a dick when interpreting the rules. So, you know, if you and I were playing that, I would probably just house rules it that Skyfires don't count as demons for the purpose of mm. that particular rule because it doesn't make sense narratively. And we're all about that, the feel of the game and the sense of the game. Mm. Like it makes sense to me based on the description of the spell that reality folds in on itself and more demons emerge. It doesn't make sense that more Skyfires emerge because mm. they are a different part of the fiction. They emerge from something else. They come from something at the other part of the story that we're telling. Um, the problem is at tournaments where it's all about winning and, and that's when these kind of exceptions come into play. And it's where a game, which why I think, you know, I find games like X-Wing much more gratifying because the rules are much more transparent for this reason. Um, so to answer the question, I guess... You no, know, it's not a perfectly balanced meta game, but also that hasn't affected us at all, really. Yeah. Like nothing about the meta has been like, I ever really had any bearing on the games we've played. That's What's just that, me uh, sucking. I, I would say that, um, I've watched loads of, uh, the brilliant Warhammer community Twitch stuff where every week they play games of AOS and games of Warhammer 40,000 and they are doing a really good job of covering tournaments. And this very weekend, actually, we're recording this. They're recovering, they're covering the South Coast GT, which is the biggest AOS tournament in the world. And, um, whereas, you know, the meta does have these extremes and these quirks, the, the range of armies that are competitive is considerable for Age of Sigmar at the moment. Yeah, that's true as well. Uh, um, so I, uh, whereas, you know, the perfect idea is that anything could be competitive if you play it very well. Obviously, nothing can achieve that, but. And the way uh, the place AOS is at, at the moment, like you're seeing even death armies doing well, and there's not been like a properly major death release since, um, flesh eater courts. And you've seen lots of, um, obviously thanks to the sky fires that exploit the zinch is well represented, but you're still seeing loads of stormcast and you're still seeing loads mm. of sylvaneth, which for that book was released like a, more than a year ago now, I think. Um, yeah. so, the, uh, and lots of destruction kind of ogre forces. So like uh, the, the actual range of stuff that is competitive, even at the highest level, I think is impressive for AOS. Maybe that's just because it hasn't been around a huge amount of time. And maybe as, uh, you know, we get into more and more releases two years down the line, then certain things will just 
emerge as superior. But I, at the same time, Games Workshop patched the game now. Like they yeah. release updated War Scrolls and they, they see that happening. They are, they're actually equipped in uh, this game to be able to say, I don't know, we're not, that's not as, as intended. We're going to update, update these rules. We're going to re-release the War Scroll. And maybe that, that bodes very well for the health of the game in the long term. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, the app is a good move in this regard because it means that if, you know, if they ever implemented the rule that like an official tournament or, you know, to be recognized as a, an official AOS tournament, uh, you have to use the app versions of the war scrolls so there's no going back to previous battle tomes to find yeah. the you mm. know particular things and that gives them a lot of freedom to tweak this in a way that they haven't had before because the the situation with you know 40k for a long time has been that you can show up you know you can source your army from like seven different books to combine the rules that are favorable to you and that's where these real like you're saying that's where these real balance issues come in it's not someone wrote a bad rule mm. most the vast majority of the time it's an unexpected interaction with yeah, a different rule yeah. from seven years ago or mm. something mad where it's like okay now this is broken and that's you know i think um it's not the players bear responsibility because ultimately the makers and the designers of the game bear responsibility for creating something where balance is possible most mm. of the time but you know just as sort of narrative-minded players who are having fun with their mates can pull the game towards fairness so too can competitive minded players pull the game towards imbalance because mm. that urge to exploit rules does not necessarily occur outside of a strictly competitive context, right? Mm. Except for maybe unless you are, you know, unless you're dispositionally inclined to try and break games, you know, most people will just play them as they see them until yeah. they hit one of these weird moments. I think that's the competitive game mindset is that it, how can I break this? Or how can I find something a bit disgusting that's going to just do absurd amounts? Like it's, it's a puzzle. Like it's a, like a, a form of puzzle solving. Yeah. Not, obviously then you still have to ex- execute on the tabletop, but there's no doubt that, you know, some of these destruction forces are just incredible at just getting across the board straight away the first turn and dealing vast amounts of mortal wounds. And, uh, you know, a lot of forces just aren't going to stand up to that. No. And, and if you're, if you're having to build your army against that, which obviously that's how the meta starts, then, um, you know that's one way of playing the game and i still think there are lots of um, there are lots of competitive ways of doing it lots of competitive armies uh but i worry that the patching uh idea of this type of game is that it's very difficult for your average player to keep up with patches and facts yeah and that there i wish that um aos had a more elegant way of communicating when things had changed so mm. i'm sitting here with my stormcast book and that might be different in six months. I might have tweaked the way a Castellan works or something like that. And there's no kind of, I don't know where to go to get that stuff. I know that they publish game facts in the apps, but I don't want to have to trawl through like loads of text with highlighted pink bits to find out what's actually changed in my army. I kind of want, I don't know, I don't know how to solve this, but I always want bulletins almost <laughs> to tell me how my yeah. shit has changed. It should be like you you tell the app what you own, mm. and then it gives you a little pop up to say like, "Hey, this has changed." You nerfed him. Yeah, this is an, an alteration is available. For but this I think year. also like I think, you know, the goal is not to be a world championship player. Mm. It's to collect and play with the stuff you're interested in, and that's a different set of objectives. Like I'm yeah, like true. I was thinking about this like for a while we were considering like do we you know try and get to the point where we have semi-competitive armies to go and do the warhammer fest tournament which i think we've sort of set against now really it's a bit too yeah, much warhammer as of today um yeah yeah we should talk about why we decided not to do that actually i think that's quite interesting yeah 
Because uh, I think that would be interesting to people who are thinking about going to tournaments. Uh, sure. So, I mean, so, the, well, to, to, the point I was going to say is that um, the, like, I was staring down the barrel of, like, trying to get through all my angles in a month just to have stuff ready for a tournament. Mm. And I was like, well, if I want to be competitive, I have two boxes of Enlightened and Enlightened are the kit that can be either the melee-focused Sangor Enlightened or the Sangor Skyfires. And I had always planned to do one box of Enlightened and one box of Skyfires. And I still do. But I had that moment of knowing that, like, oh, man, if I really wanted to win tournaments, mm. I would just make both boxes of Skyfires. And then I realized, like, partly, I mean, one, I'm not very good at this game. I've won one game ever. Two, it's a bit of a dice game. I know I play a lot of X-Wing. I play a lot of X-Wing at tournaments to a reasonably high level. I know that sometimes you can get diced out of a tournament. It's all about odds. It's all about odds over the course of a long day sometimes. And in a game of X-Wing, where you are just there for the day and you're com composing a squadron out of stuff you own out of a bigger collection and that squadron dissolves back into your collection as rapidly as it emerges from it, that randomness is easy to accept. If you go all in on on trying super hard an AOS tournament to the point that you are doing things with your expensive models that you don't really want to do to have a better shot at winning, and then you lose, that's going to fucking suck. Mm. So just do what you want to do. Like, if I go to an AOS tournament now, I'm going to go with the army I want to take. And if it is not 100% competitively viable, fine. I'll play it to the best of my ability and I'll have fun. Mm. But the hobby investment, all of that stuff that surrounds it, makes it absolutely not worth trying to metagame it too much because unless the metagame like aligns perfectly with what i want from a hobby point of view from a painting from a look feel point of view mm. it's not worth it and the metagame can turn on a dime with a book or with a fact release and all that expensive time and money you put into a particular competitive build will suddenly yeah. not be worth anything anymore and you know you have to be aware of that. So yeah, suddenly they nerfed Skyfires and Enlightened are amazing. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't build my Enlightened. Like, yeah. What are you going to do? Um, yeah, and I, I, there are a few reasons why... Um, so I was very tempted to go and do the tournament at Warhammer Fest. And a few things put me off. First of all, was what Chris just described. Um, secondly, there are four games in one day. And a game lasts two hours. And like eight hours over a course of like a 10-hour period, or 10 or 12-hour period of Warhammer is a lot of probably quite eventually stressful yeah and tiring uh so it would feel like a, a chore by mm. probably the halfway point so having like four games in one day is just not appealing to me i'm not gonna spend a lot of money to go to coventry to go and do that really yeah um the other thing is like uh i've not played in a tournament like this before and i've no idea what the etiquette is in terms of how things are measured like the actual kind of xyz of what's going to piss people off if i behave in a certain mm. way and obviously i know how to be like a you know polite human being and stuff but i'm talking about actually how how things are moved around what i need to tell my opponent at any given point like how i should be describing my actions how dice are rolled and what extent do i need to explain every war score to my opponent all of these kind of tiny little things that make up etiquette in a competitive game context i just have no kind of grounding in aos for that whatsoever the idea of just kind of wading into that <laughs> spending loads of money to wade into that and potentially just affect, like annoy a load of people and have a bad experience is a yeah. significant worry there's um i mean there are tournaments coming up in bristol that probably be a better introduction to that stuff i think I've so been, yeah. like um that's the sort of thing i'm a little bit more comfortable now because like i think a couple of years now which is a weird thought of tournament x-wing have taught me how to talk to people as strangers in that context which is I, you know i think is a really valuable skill mm. something i find very valuable about tabletop gaming 
is you know my background in in competitive computer gaming there's no concept of etiquette there's no concept that you even have to treat the other person like a human being <laughs> right that is necessary even to the people who fail at it in tabletop gaming or who people who do struggle with an attitude problem and that kind of thing and it's a valuable thing to know how to do i found that there's no as long as you don't ever present yourself as patronizing um there's no issue over explaining things mm. so it's a, that's that's the balance to strike that to make it clear through your tone that you're explaining things in the aim of you having a fun game not in the aim of teaching your opponent how to play so um the find the thing i've always found is like saying um you know here's my list or here's my here's my army here's my squadron is there anything you're not you'd like me to explain because most people will go oh i'm not like i'm used to this from an x-wing background but it's true it was true in aos as well like I'm not sure what his deal is, or I'm not sure what this unit does. And then you just go, okay, well, I'll do this, this, and this. And you Mm. don't read them the rules. You just say, all right, they're really good at this, this, and this, and there's this special rule. And I think if you're super honest, and I think this is a good measure of who you are as a competitive player, you should be willing to explain the strategic environment in which that unit has has an advantage. Mm. Um, So you'll say like, oh, well, this guy... Um, you know, I'm trying to think of an Age of Sigmar example, but it's pretty easy to go with the next wing one. But it's like, oh, you see, well, this unit will get a free shot if you move in range of him during the activation phase. So really, he's like a small blocker. He wants to get in your way, that kind of thing. Because mm. if you're confident in your ability to execute a strategy, you should be ex- able to explain the top level version of what that strategy is. The kinds of things they would know mm. if they had just played more of the game. But maybe like a, a super competitive person who's more of a dick would be like oh, i'll explain the bare bones and it's up to you to figure yeah out. it's up to you to figure out where the where the line is yeah. um you know I, I i think like i mean i've legitimately lost competitive games of x-wing because i've told my opponent oh you have a reroll mm. which they would otherwise would have forgotten whereas in tournament x-wing if you forget you forget like you didn't do it you didn't do it like yeah. you don't get to ask for it a turn later that kind of thing mm. but um i yeah i have that urge of like i hate seeing people get disappointed mm. so i always go like oh don't forget you know like yeah, there's a, uh, and a lot of AOS tournaments have sportsmanship scores and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, which kind of. Uh, yeah, that's, that's the word for it. Yeah. Sportsmanship is a real thing. Like, yeah, yeah. Like for me, I know from, from this experience of doing this over the time that like nothing upsets me more than poor sportsmanship when someone displays it. Mm. Um, it really ruins my mood. It really sours my feel of an event if someone is genuinely a dick. Mm. It's very rare in tabletop, but it does happen. Um, and I know that I, like I never react hostile to it in the time, but I become very sad. Yeah. Like, I walk away from games upset, even if I didn't say anything to my opponent, just because I've had to kind of, like, ignore them and focus on my own game because they're being bad. Mm. And sportsmanship is very important to me, so I try to be super pleasant to play with, even if I'm having a bad game or even if I'm having a bad time, honestly. Mm. Um, everyone fucks that up, but, like, that's 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 probably more important to me than winning because, you know, I've had games of x-wing where i've walked away from it feeling like i've been ungracious as a loser or great ungracious as a winner even um thankfully not very many but when it happens the feeling of like i fucked that up is worse than Mm. it overrules the feeling of having won if you won right yeah um so like sportsmanship absolutely comes first to me so i'm kind of comfortable in that regard like i'm comfortable that i could go and play four games of aos in a day it's just whether or not I would still be having fun was the end of it. Is yeah, the thing. Like, that is the main problem. And, then, well. and therefore, if I'm not having fun anymore, the task of maintaining that, I don't like. I don't want my lack of fun to ruin the day of someone else I'm playing and yeah, who maybe sure. is having fun. Mm. So like the fact that I have to keep up that appearance 
and be like fun to play with, mm. which is important to me. Like that, that is, that is the pressure that I'd rather avoid. I yeah, think. sure. Um, especially with like expense and the travel to go and do it. It's like, um, you're right. Like if it was a Bristol thing, I could just go over, go down the road, uh, down the road, catch a train, play for a day and get into it. Then that's a really good way to trial it. But yeah. then a big, huge hobby project that then ends in potential disappointment and, you know, uncertainty, not so good. Yeah, I think I'd like more of a I'd love to do one of those big events someday, particularly Definitely. when there's like the painting element of it and you can yeah. make a display board for your models, that kind of thing. That really appeals to me, but and that's, I, that's further off. Yeah, I really like the idea as well. Like South Coast GT is very good at this and Adepticon has um, this element as well where it's also just a giant celebration of beautiful painting and model construction and army mm. construction. That uh, There's a huge element, you know, uh, there's a huge uh, celebration of the hobby side of things where people spend a year like planning this army and painting it and making it beautiful then you, you might get to play against that army on a, a beautiful table and that is that's really really cool yeah um something that um i think we were talking about this earlier and i mentioned that worth mentioning is something i think the x-wing scene does really well the warhammer could potentially learn from is so i've done big x-wing events like um i remember i didn't manage to go this year but the yavin open which is basically the the uk national for a particular international track mm um last year the first time they ran it in birmingham um it was the most intense weekend of x-wing of my life because they hosted a regional tournament on the friday Mm. and then the sort of national open took place over the next two days and the regional was a five round swiss so five rounds of x-wing and a round of x-wing is 75 minutes so it's not short it's not as long as a full game of age of sigma but it's you know you're still playing five 75 minute games um, I think it was five and then more if you made the cut for the final top 16, which I didn't. And then the first round of the national was six rounds in a day. So six 75 minute rounds. And then if you made the final day, there was an additional three rounds Blood. and I, I did make the final day. Yeah. So, um, cause I went four and two on the first day and then made the second day and then bombed out on the second day a little bit. But, uh, the thing they did that was really good is if you, because of the way Swiss pairings work or Swiss rankings work, there can be a point in Swiss where if you, if you lose your first three games, you're out. Like mathematically, there is no way. There, hypothetically, you could make the second day, but even if you did, it's extremely unlikely that you would eventually make the cut. Hmm. And it's even that it's extremely likely to even make the second day. So um what this happens, and this is a tournament with hundreds of people, you know, upwards of 400 players. Like um if you don't make it through that first day, hypothetically you could have paid for a two-day tournament but you're kind of done by halfway through the first one just on performance Mm. and so what they do is they tend to arrange side events for the second day where there are basically like silly formats and just for fun tournaments like we're going to do a tournament where everyone gets one ship and we all play on one massive board with like eight people and we see what happens Mm. and there are extra prizes available for that and there's fun things to do on the second day and that would be a a a format for aos i'd be really interested in yeah where it's like a weekend that you book and you go and do the weekend but if after the first day you know because what a lot of people do is when they know because six a six game day is punishing and what they know is that if you do you know what a lot of people know that by game four they know by middle afternoon i can't make it anymore Mm. so they drop and they go and have the rest of the nice time at the games event or whatever is hosting the tournament they go to the pub and they come back the next day for the side events and they still get two fun days of x-wing but at no point do they have to strain themselves because they can and they're not they're not harming anyone by leaving at the point where it's no longer possible for them to make it Mm. and i think that's a really 
healthy way of running a tournament that means everyone's entertained. Because I loved the second day. Like, I had a bad day on the second day of Yarvin, but, like, I enjoyed every minute of it because there was, like, the side events were happening on the other tables and everyone's having fun. And then at the few remaining tables are everyone who's still in. Mm. And that's a really cool feeling. Like, you know, they you get extra prizes and things for making it through to the second day. Like, I have a stack of acrylic shield tokens for x-wing that are exclusively for that second day of that yeah, event cool. yeah. and so that's like i own them for a reason mm. like I, you know i i remember when the guy came around and gave us them and that's <laughs> like you know that was the that was a, you know and so everyone comes away feeling like they got something out of the whole weekend which is something i know i wouldn't get out of this age of sigmar event because i don't have a chance right yeah like i'm gonna be out of contention within like two games three games and after that it's just playing for the fun of it which is fine but in a marathon mm. anything's gonna get boring yeah so it's a really good idea. I mean, I would uh, go along and just play on the second day and just say, oh, I just want to play silly tournaments. Yeah. I think you can just, like, just to get used to it. Yeah. Uh, so if they ran kind of parallel little kind of, um, you know, just the hero combat games or just, you know, 750 pointers or dual game, you know, partners games where it's 2v2 or whatever, whatever they wanted to do on the second day, like I would bring a box of, uh, my Stormcast to play on the second day on, for the casual stuff, just to get used to it and just yeah, to kind yeah. of get into the flow of it and what it's like to do this stuff with other people who are complete strangers. Um, and then still see the Golden Demon and, you know, it feels like that'll be a more, ra- you know, that I'd still get the gaming in, I'd still get the hobby in. So we should, we should say that we, should, we have decided that we're going to go to Warhammer Fest, yeah. but we're just going to go as show goes. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we'll go on to see the Golden Demon and kind of just say hello to Games Workshop. Um, and just to hang out and just. I don't know, buy whatever yeah, beautiful buy things. Buy beautiful and things. the other great part of this hobby. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, like, I totally agree. Um, it's, it's a daunting proposition at the moment. I don't know how we got onto that from the meta, but that's, that's question one. Wow. Down. Good. Done. Um, I hope we don't have many more. Um, I do, so I, I hope, I hope um, Isaac, that you can forgive me for misusing <laughs> the word orrery. How do we get from orrery to that? Mm. <laughs> well done, us. A veritable cosmos of tangents swirling around us in the manner of a swirly space thing. Vortex, but nothing else. Only <laughs> yeah, that description. Exactly. Um, Mitchell writes next, Dear Miniature Crate and Monthly Crowbar, My friends and I are deeply into all things Warhammer through the video games, board games, and books, etc., and have been cautiously slash lustily eyeing proper miniatures for some time now. Barring a Battle for McCrag starter kit... We have very little experience with the game itself and probably don't have the time or money to invest in proper armies. Hearing your discussion on Shadespire last episode, I was wondering if it would be possible to go out and get, say, any six hero minis and have some small 3v3 skirmishes using the AOS or 40k rules. Basically, I want to play something like Shadespire, but with any GW minis I want. Is this doable? Do you think it should be? Or does it defeat the purpose of the game and should we just stick to X-Wing? Really enjoying the new pod. I got into X-Wing because of Chris's stress and focus tournament diary on Shut Up and Sit Down. So it's all coming full circle now. Thanks, Mitchell from Toronto. That's an interesting yeah, question. Yeah, a good question, actually. I'm not sure there is space for that precise um, thing. There would be. So um, you know how in the AOS starter box, mm. the very first scenario it gets you to do is just Corgus Call versus Vanders Hammerhand. It's just two hero models hitting each other yeah. to teach you the rules. If they do what they are implying they'll do with the new 40k, open play will provide rules that allow you to do exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. At a very basic level. Because, I mean, fundamentally, those rules will be free. Those, presumably those, whatever they call war scrolls will be free. Yeah. Um, so if you wanted to buy a couple of 40k models and make them fight, 
that will be doable without a big investment or needing to worry about army minimum requirements or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, other than that, Shadespire sounds like the best bet by a long way. And obviously it's not out yet, but I mean, uh, if you're interested in AOS at all and don't mind not it not being a 40k thing, then that box I imagine isn't going to be hugely expensive in the number of models and the fact that they're going to want a large, you know, install base to borrow a word from video games. Yeah. Shadow War is the other side of this. Yeah. It's a little bit more complicated scenery. and the scenery requirement That's is the bigger thing. That's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that would be, that would have been my default answer if not for the scenery thing. Mm. And, you know, I used to play more time with cardboard boxes and things. Like, you can just build your own stuff. But in terms of just wanting to try out a few models, have a knockabout, then it's still going to be a bit of too much of an investment potentially. Yeah. There's also games like Gore Chosen. Oh, yeah. Um, which was the standalone kind of like corn arena combat game they released. It comes with, it's, it's a great value box actually. Yeah. Uh, it's a 35 quid box that comes with four models individually or about 18 pounds each. So it's about half price on all those models. They're really good models. They're lovely models. Um, all corn stuff. So mm. like the aspiring Deathbringer, the Exalted Deathbringer, the Slaughter Priest, and the Skull Grinder. Mm. How do I remember all these that things? That's impressive. Because <laughs> um, you're truly corn. You <laughs> tend to be seen. No, I just, I understand a lot of fantasy nonsense words, like <laughs> string them together. It's fine. And, you know, I can tell you what the difference between a Skull Grinder and a Slaughter Priest is, and that's personally embarrassing. Um, but, um, but yeah, so that, that might be a good set because that, that's a standalone rule set. So yeah. just making models fight in an arena, mm. that might be a good fit as well while you wait. Um, but yeah, you're right. Shades by sounds like a, a good fit for this kind of thing. Yeah. The cool thing about all these things is with AOS as it's currently operating is if those models ended up forming the basis of a, uh, corn army, then you can do that. Like there is a battalion in the new corn book called the Gore Chosen, mm. which is a, um, I think it's an, Exalted Deathbringer and any seven other corn heroes forms one battalion. Oh, cool. Um, because that's what a gore chosen is. Hmm. It's all of the favorite gore people. <laughs> the gore band. <laughs> I quite like corn. I like corn as well. Corn's my second favorite <laughs> chaos guide because it's kind of interesting going into the corn stuff after Zinch because... It's like tonal opposite. Yeah, well, but like... Corn is like the most honest chaos god. Mm. Like there's something duplicitous about Nurgle because it's like, I'm giving you a great gift. Oh, I'm really sorry. The gift is Ebola. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you didn't want this, but it's my favorite thing. Um, with Zinch, it's like, uh, promises, deceptions, trickery, aspirations, dreams, and it's all lies. You're a tentacle now. Mm. Um, and Slanesh is like, isn't pleasure great until it's too much? Whereas Corn is like, there's no, there's no, um, dishonesty about it. Like, what are we here for? Skulls? When do we want them skulls? Yeah. And that's... How many skulls do you have? Lots. Uh, yeah. Well done. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You're promoted. <laughs> it's a it's a pure meritocracy. It's a rare example mm. of pure meritocracy within the Warhammer pantheon. I mean, I say pure meritocracy based on a very specific set of skills, Liam Neeson style. Yeah. Um, Liam Neeson definitely skews Cornwoods, I would say. <laughs> based on his recent... Album. I have a very specific set of skulls. <laughs> <laughs> Let's uh, not over-tangent this one. Let's move on to the next question, which comes from Will, who writes, Dear Mini Monthlies, I only started listening to CNC a few months ago, so for you to add a minis pod was brilliant. I was also a teenage GWer, but lost touch with the hobby through university, etc. And since I moved to the USA a few years ago, I think I'm unlikely to find myself back there anytime soon. Why have GW never been so successful in the US? Question mark, dot, dot, dot. That's an interesting question by itself. Yeah. And maybe initially because, uh, Core Warhammer and 40k was, it is weirdly British in its origins. Like it's type mm. of, it's brand of, 
dystopian and fundamentally often pessimistic uh, fantasy mixed with uh, slapstick absurdity is, I don't know, it feels like a very kind of 80s British. I think totally, yeah. I think the other side of it is, I think at the same time that Warhammer was becoming a thing in the UK, um, Dungeons and Dragons was the craze in the US. Oh, yeah. Like, you can always say that, like, until a few years ago, D&D wasn't really a huge thing in the UK outside Mm. of niches of niches, a bit like Warhammer is in the US. Um, so the two, um, kind of had their own territories. Like, yeah. Mm. I mean, I, I, I say that because the way I've always understood Warcraft in the video games world is Warcraft is a marriage of the sort of the top layer of Warhammer with the tone of Dungeons and Dragons. Mm. Cause Dungeons and Dragons has always been a lot sunnier. It's a lot more optimistic. Um, and that, that Warcraft makes sense as a merger of sort of American fantasy sensibilities as communicated through Dungeons and Dragons with the yeah. war aspect of, of Warhammer. And maybe the other thing is that, you know, Games Workshop has just focused more on the British market as, yeah. you know, uh, and not really done as much to spread or market beyond these shores. And I mean, it fact, is huge in America, though, to be fair. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, it is now. I mean, Adepticon is enormous, and that's got just a huge 40k scene there. And so it's clearly, it does, you know, there is a huge market in America. But um, I don't feel, as, you know, if, if people are criticizing Games Workshop for not being very good at marketing or very kind of you know uh inclusive or up to date with its marketing a few years ago like it that certainly applies doubly to territories outside of the uk you know yeah uh, true the other side of this might well have been historically distribution because hmm. you and i know having worked in the print media no, yeah, that, true. um the the reason for the rapid decline of print in the us as opposed to anywhere else in the world really specifically europe um that's anywhere else in the world i mean europe um is because distribution costs for physical things in america is just astronomically higher than everywhere else mm. so the sense of prints decline was exacerbated by the fact that it declined faster in the u.s than everywhere else um and i suspect you know if what you were selling was a D core book in the 80s it's a lot easier to get that out mm. around america than it is to get boxes and boxes of metal miniatures mm. i suspect yeah good so point. i mean the um gw's is approach historically is to been put shops to put shops in every city yeah <laughs> and wayward youth centers yeah for the nerdiest uh, youth which is which is okay on a relatively smallish island like as uh but in america that's a lot of office space it is anyway the other half of will's question where he asks an actual question oh right is <laughs> anyway it's interesting to hear the new approach gw seem to be taking to their business model give away the rules and update them regularly but continue to charge an arm a leg Sorry, charge an arm and a leg. Charge an arm. Like Samus in Metroid. <laughs> um, continue to charge an arm and a leg for minis, paints, etc. How do you think this new approach is going to work for them? Should they lower the barrier to entry? Sorry, it should lower the barrier to entry, but will it drive the price of figures even higher? Do you think it's related to their relaxing the IP franchise opportunities for more computer games in their universes? Tar for the pod, Will. Uh, and then PS, a third question. Um, are you Bath natives? If you were playing in the GW there in the mid-90s, you probably wiped the floor with my Bretonians or Space Marines at some point. Hmm. Neither of us are Bath natives. Nope. I'm from Liverpool. I'm from Birmingham. And that's how that works. Um, so I think um, I think maybe Will's got slightly the wrong end of the stick about how GW's business model has changed. Because mm. definitely, the yeah, the rules being free mostly is, is a thing now. But also the miniatures have got a lot cheaper, but only through bundle deals which is the trick, right? Mm. 
So like it's the gateway drug. It is the gateway drug. So things like the start collecting boxes, um, mm. which are fifty pound boxes that contain somewhere between five hundred and thousand points worth of army, are very good value compared to the price of buying those things individually. Mm. I suppose the broader question here is, what is an arm and a leg? As I mean, I'm not mean literally. Like, yes, value. So yeah, like you and I have both been back into this for. Well, me, it's not quite a year because I've been actually before that and mm. pretty much on a year now for you, Tom, I reckon. Uh, yeah, just, just past. Just getting there, right? I would say, yep. Do you have any sense of what material things are worth anymore? Uh, I clearly have some sense because I think still think things are expensive or not expensive when I look yeah. at them. Uh, but I know what my time is worth. I know how much t- uh, time, how much pleasure mm. I get out of these miniatures over that time. And to me, £30 for a box of 10 miniatures is easily worth that money. Um, of course, the paints are expensive as well. But, yeah. you know, if I paid, so with the paints, maybe £50. And if I, you know, put those effort into those miniatures, I'll probably get like 15, 20 hours. If I play with them, potentially hundreds of hours pleasure out of them. And yeah. I've been collecting them for a year now. And I find that I've found that the investment has been, has paid back. For the, for the amount of money put, put into it. Oh, yeah, I agree. I find that coming from a computer games background, the the hole that the £50 for a new game, AAA game, mm. seems to vanish into is less pronounced to me. Like, I assumed that I would feel guilty about, you know, 30, 40 quid spent on models. But because you'd see them on a shelf and go, I spent 20 quid on these plastic men. Mm. And then you get a takeout. And that is £20. Mm. And that vanishes. And, or you get, you go out for a drink, a couple of drinks, and that's 20 pounds. Like, you know, I'm not saying that there aren't more worthy uses. <laughs> I'm not saying it is the most worthy use of 20 pounds <laughs> on planet Earth, because it absolutely obviously isn't. But, um, I find it easier than I would have thought to justify that as a use of my disposable income mm. in a way that will make me kind of, I'll get a lot out of over time. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, in terms of the, like the cost of it, I know nothing about miniatures production. I have no idea what the margins are. I have no idea. Like people online, you'll see a lot saying that Games Workshop stuff is a rip off, but their plastic molds are fucking amazing. Like yeah. they're some of the best in the world, and you do pay for that quality. Like, and if you, it, frankly, like if you don't want to spend that much on a miniatures game, there are miniatures games that will cost you like fifteen pounds for a lot a less. Stuff. Yeah, so, yeah, it's way less if you want to do that. It's like it's whether you want to pay for this type of this to get into this fancy and to, to paint this sort of model, you know. I think it's the thing that's I mean, he mentions the computer games, but like for me it's like um um it's the thing that brings miniatures games into shop relief is that like if I wanted to play a strategy game that looks nice tomorrow, hmm. I can play a computer game. I mean Dawn of War's out really soon, right? Like if I want to play a Warhammer computer game I can do that. Yeah. Um there is a specific pleasure to owning models like i think i think the the notion that yeah the um, the models cost an arm and a leg is definitely true but that is more that is more of a hard thing to swallow if you feel that they that that cost is the thing barring you from access to this game you want to play mm. um obviously this is very specific to me personally but like because the the pleasure of owning and painting the models comes first it's almost like like we found out today playing prosper for the first time mm. the game is the bonus the game is the thing of like, oh, we spent ages making these tiny plastic people that look cool. Mm. And now we get to play a game with interesting rules with yeah. them. Um, it's definitely the type of player you are. I think, honestly, if, if what you're interested in is strategy and becoming a better strategic gamer, 
I think you should get into computer games <laughs> and possibly also get into, um, I think, you know, an X-Wing is a good bet for that because you can, it's a little bit more accessible in that regard. Like, um, maybe this whole part I've been orbiting around saying, I don't know if I would recommend Games Workshop games to people as purely competitive outlets because mm. I don't think that's where their strengths lie, really. I think that's what the thing they've always struggled with the most. Whereas what they're very good at, as you say, is making amazing looking models and making them fun to paint. Yeah. And the, and there's a giving you a framework to show off those models with each other via games. Mm. Uh, and obviously there is, there is a competitive element to it because it sustains these huge tournaments. But that's not, for me, where the value lies monetarily. Yeah. But like you say, like when we talk about those kinds of events that appeal to us the most, mm. it's always a coming together of lots of different disciplines. There's a, there's a, a prominent painting element. There is a prominent playing element as well mm. and display element almost like a performance element to yeah. it it's this combination of things it's somewhere between a war game and a cosplay contest yeah um and that's unique and brilliant but if if it is all about the strategy to you then i think there are better uses of your resources mm. if it's not and if it's about that coming together of different things then i think this is a perfectly good use of 20 pounds yeah sure Our final question comes from Chimp, who's repeatedly beaten you at Age of Sigma. Absolutely. Oh. I don't think I've won a game against him. Oh, I've won one. Okay. Only just. He writes, Dear Star Souls and Stormglady Eye, This is going to be extremely out of date by now, but while I agree that the changes to the big offenders in X-Wing metagame are good, do you feel it's ultimately damaging to their buy ships for the cards business model? He says, looking at epic ships, auto thrusters, and crack shot, which are examples of upgrades that only came with specific onerous purchases mm. i always thought this was pretty rough for tournament x-wing players but there's a whiff of the ridiculous about having to buy a 90 pound expansion to be able to take pal bases list which is palpatine aces to a final fantasy event uh, sorry final fantasy fantasy flight event in order to own a card that you won't actually use at the table because all of the printed text is now incorrect the raider for example was already being devalued by the tie advanced prototype release and the inquisitor being what if vader but better uh I know technically you're not buying a ship for the cards, but you're getting a plastic ship as well. But no one gives a shit about the Kirax fighter. It doesn't even look like a Star Wars ship. Thanks for being a miniatures podcast without terrible music, bants, or politics. Love, chimp. P.S. Tom, I'd love to know how it feels to cheat in list construction and still lose. Do you want to answer that last bit first? Uh, yeah, so I played a game recently uh, against chimp where uh, it was a really good game, actually. Um, it was super close. I, I think it was four places of power where uh, there are four positions on the board that you need to seize one is in your opponent territory and that's worth four points there are two side ones which were equidistant from each force and they're worth two points and the one in your own territory i think is worth one so it's about kind of striking out and you know if you gamble a bit and capture your opponent's uh objective then you get loads of points um so i played this great game and uh i took the hammer strike force which is some prosecutors that can lightning strike down uh retributors I'll use that to seize uh, Chimp's point in my first turn. He gave me the first turn. So I just flew them across, sat these guys down, and the game unfolded from there. And I had these formulators that I put in, uh, you know, the Isaric realm, or whatever. And uh, when you do that, you can roll for them every turn, and on a three plus, they turn up. And I kept rolling for them, and, you know, turn one, they didn't come down, which is, you know, I was like, oh, a bit of a shame, but it's fine, you know, I, it gives me more flexibility. Turn two, they didn't come down. And I was like, uh, this is probably going to be kind of a problem because all my guys are getting overwhelmed and uh chimp running a, a fleshy to quartz force had just huge model count and model count is what counts for capturing these object objectives so the stormcaster being slowly subsumed and then the third turn they uh i think they did come down then 
by then it was far too late. So like almost all of my guys were dead. We're ready. And uh, it's like, we've got, we've got this guy. So, oh, where are you? Why, why are we alone? Um, but then <laughs> afterwards when we checked the sheets, um, I realized that I'd taken the wrong sheets from my list in his ear, which is the, uh, uh, the AOS app that lets mm. you build things. So, uh, so I said, Oh, I'll just pick this 1500 point list and I'll run with that. Uh, but it's actually more like a 2000 point list. And <laughs> a lot of that cost for those formulators, uh, who did fuck all because they didn't come down until the very end of the game and, uh, they failed to influence anything. Uh, so I was, I was definitely overpointed. Uh, but thanks to my own stupidity, uh, the extra points did literally nothing for the most Great. part. Uh, I still lost though, but it was a really interesting game because I got, I scored massively in the opening turn because of the hammer strike force. And I owned three points out of the four for like one or two. And then slowly just like the tide turned and I just didn't have the model count to sustain it. And then by turn, the end of turn three, going into turn four, it was like obvious that we'd lost. And we both had too much whiskey anyway, so we stopped. (laughs) (laughs) Good times. Good. So um, this broader question is about the, to clarify, if by X-Wing Miniatures game, you buy all of the things they sell for X-Wing Miniatures are ships, Mm. pre-painted ships they sell. And each ship comes with cards for that ship from pilot cards to upgrade cards is the upgrade cards that could potentially be used on ships that aren't the ship you've bought it for and in the most onerous cases there are ships that you might buy that are quite bad like the star viper but who come with upgrades that are basically essential for other ships so if you want to fly an imperial tight interceptor you desperately need an upgrade called auto thrusters which only comes with the star viper which is a scum ship that you probably wouldn't use for anything else at the moment although i know from basically like chewing the ear off um that's a phrase right mm. is it close enough talking the ear off um there's no chewing talking the ear off one of x-wings lead designers at star wars celebration hopefully the star viper will get some love but nonetheless there's a lot of kind of buying models you don't necessarily want for upgrades you need for something else and it, it, it within the context of game of of uh, I say limited scope, but like X-Wing is a finite game in a way that Warhammer can sometimes feel like an infinite game because you're always building to a hundred point limit pretty much. Um, it's ultimately not that bad, but I say that as someone who owns everything, which is nuts. So that's the thing that I struggled with with uh, X-Wing was like, I, I went into it with perhaps quite a Warhammer mindset where I was like, I want to build this force. Yeah. So I want to build a, a weird scum force. And you just can't do that without buying loads of rebel ships. Yeah. Loads of imperial like, ships. For example, like I will tell people like, I don't play scum, hmm. but if you look to my shelf, <laughs> you'll notice scum. every scum ship. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the so, business model works. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, so the, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a weird system, particularly if you come to it from Warhammer, it's, it's not so bad if you consider that because all upgrade cards are ultimately taxed. Um, in friendly games, proxying cards is very common where you just mm. say, I've got this card and here's what it does. And we just assume that you do. You pay the points cost for it. You just you don't need it. The only time you need the physical card, and this is why Chimp mentions fan- uh, Fantasy Flight Games tournaments particularly, yeah. is in official tournaments, you need the actual card. Mm. Um, so that's a, you know, it's a legit thing. The the particular example he calls out is um, one of the most sort of contentious um Imperial cards for a long time was Palpatine himself, the Emperor, as a crew card. Yeah. Um, which has been actually not changed that much, but in order to change him a little bit, they basically had to reword him completely. So the card as printed is currently wrong. So that invalidates it in competitive context. You can use it in a competitive context, but it has the new wording. Okay. But you still, you still need the physical card, which is a weird situation to end yeah, up in. Yeah, that's really weird. Particularly because <laughs> that card comes with one of the most expensive X-Wing expansions, which is the Imperial Raider, which is the massive oh, Imperial ship. It's capital ship, right? Yeah, it's like a mini capital ship, like a frigate. 
uh, prominently featured in the uh, Battlefront 2 trailer, ah. despite being invented for X-Wing, the miniatures game. Rad. Yeah. Feeding back into the... Yeah, universe. it's all looping back. Um, uh, you know, he also says that the, the Raider purchase was devalued by the fact that um, the Inquisitor who flies the Tyvance prototype being Vader, but better. That's actually a kind of incorrect... Because Vader has one of the best pilot skills in the game. He's just in a ship that's not very good. Hmm. Um, whereas the Inquisitor is far more fragile and far less versatile, but just in a ship that's slightly got a slightly better dial because has a green hard one. That's not interesting to anybody outside of this. The broader question is about that practice of selling upgrade cards as via yeah. expansions. Like, I think the interesting thing about X-Wing is because the cards are what make or break the game in terms of balance, really, hmm. dials to a lesser extent... Um, they either have to give themselves the freedom to FAQ stuff quite substantially, which means functionally changing on the words, the wording on cards that have already been printed. Hmm. A problem Warhammer doesn't have because Warhammer, you kind of pull the rules. I mean, obviously the books have already been printed, but the app is out there. There's a sense of fluidity about the whole thing, whereas the cards in X-Wing feel very physical and definite. Hmm. Um, and all the Warhammer apps are, and the rules are free. You can, they're all yeah. PDFs you can just download. Nothing. Yeah, absolutely. However, um, I think it would be arrogant of any designer to say that no one ever prints rules wrong. And I think they've hit problems with X-Wing where the things they definitely can't easily reprint or FAQ hmm. cause the biggest problems for the game. So the, the example of this is like the thing they can never change is a dial because a dial is a physical thing that comes with the ship that shows you what maneuvers that ship can do. And in the most pointed recent cases the things that have really hurt the meta game for x-wing over the last year the things that have gone wrong aren't really the upgrades although they're part of it it's the dial hmm. like the jump master which is the expansion that really hurt the game um you can say a lot of things about that ship and the upgrades that came with it and the reason it was a problem but the thing that makes it overpowered is its dial hmm. and that's the thing you cannot change you need to literally take a red pen and draw some red over a few of the things on its dial and they could issue an FAQ update that said that from now on the right hand turns on the jump master dial are red, which they probably should be. Um, but there's no way to physically change the dials that are in players' hands. Whereas for whatever reason, the notion that the wording on a card could be altered by an FAQ is easier for people to internalize because it's not like a physical game bit. Right. You're not like editing the model. Hmm which is almost where they're getting at with the dials thing. And maybe that's the final Rubicon. Like I asked them when I was out there, it's always celebration. Like, do you feel like FAQs are going to be enough in the long run? Do you think you would ever need to do a ban list for cards right, or ships? And they didn't answer so definitively about that. But the assumption is that they feel that FAQ changes, particularly as they feel more liberty to like substantially reword things is enough to keep the game balanced. And by all accounts, it might. Like, for example, they're putting out a new Scum large epic, uh, an epic ship pretty mm. soon that comes with a, a reissued version of the Seek, which is a um, cousin to the Kirax that Chip doesn't like. Also from Star Wars Galaxies. They're both ships from Star Wars Galaxies. Um, which that ship has recently had some rewording to some of its key upgrades. And that ship is coming with new versions of those upgrades that have the correct text on them. Okay. The other thing they can do is they often um, use... So... Um, tournament kits that have like prizes for specific seasonal or quarterly tournaments often come with alternate art versions of upgrades hmm. and i think that would potentially be a very good vector for them to distribute correct wording versions of those cards right so if they were to release an emperor palpatine card through 
And they've often done this as a way of distributing cards that are otherwise quite hard to get. Um, so if they were to do this to distribute a new version of the Palpatine card that happened to have um, the new wording on it, that would be a really good way of doing it. Mm. So they already got this mechanism. They already did this. Like this exact scenario existed for Rebels until relatively recently because one of the most important crew cards for Rebels was C-3PO. And he was only available through the Tantive Four expansion, which is again the massive Corellian Corvette costs a lot of money. Yeah. Until they made that, they made an alternate art C3PO a tournament reward that everyone got if you entered a tournament in this particular quarter. And so there are a billion of them out there now. It crushed the secondary market for that card overnight, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons they did it. Right. Um, and now actually like most, like people who have the, not the official art C-3PO, not the alternate art C-3PO, use that instead because that's the rare one. Right. <laughs> the one that comes with the expensive ship, not yeah, the yeah. alternate art version. So, you know, there's totally precedent for them doing this, like relieving the pressure on the secondary market for certain upgrade cards by putting them out as tournament rewards. So I think, I don't know. I, like, ultimately, I quite like X-Wing system and I, I enjoy that there's this sort of excitement when a new ship comes out of discovering where it fits and how its cards affect everything else. Hmm. And because it's such a controlled environment, it hasn't, apart from like, even when the balance has gone wrong, it's nowhere near the territory the Warhammer ends up in where the rules are a lot fuzzier and a lot more analog where Hmm. things can just fuck each other up across, across the game without too much forethought. Like, yeah, I guess the, like it's interesting to try and answer the question in the same way that we did the previous question where it's like, how can you spend 20 quid on the box of models? Um, and like for us, there's the hobby draw, but maybe like if you're really competitive and it's one of the best competitive board games in the world, which surely it is, even though it has its, yeah, I think so. Um, and that's what you want to do. You want to compete in that context. Then maybe that, that card is worth 60 pounds to you. Yeah, I think so. Like, so no war game is cheap. Unfortunately, like X-Wing's expense comes from the fact that not, not the model count on the board, but the collection you build up, like. Um, you know, I've got folders full of X-Wing upgrade cards that are where the real value of my collection lies pretty much because that's what gives me the freedom to build things. The great thing about the X-Wing system, I would say, to defend it, is that once you've built that collection of ships, you have complete flexibility within that metagame. Like I say I don't play scum, but that's partly because of a dispositional alignment towards a different faction. Yeah. Um, I can play scum. If something changes in the metagame and I have an idea, I can execute that idea. I can't do that with any other war game I play. I can't do that with any Warhammer game. I can't just decide, I know this this competitive season, I'm going to play Sylvaneth because that's, that's a hundreds of pounds. Like a hundred, hundreds of pounds, hundreds of hours of hobby investment yeah. to change, to move a giant cumbersome hobby boat around. Hmm. Whereas with X-Wing, with my collection, which is admittedly in the hundreds of pounds, I can make any possible thing that's possible in that game yeah. and play it which is a different way of perceiving the value of your collection. Mm. You don't get the value of the time you spend painting things and making them your own, but you do get flexibility within the game system, which you absolutely don't get otherwise. Does that mean that ships shouldn't come up with the upgrades with that they need? Absolutely not. And and to be fair to FFG, they've gotten a lot better at that. Like the examples that Chimp cites, the Kirax, the Star Viper, uh, the Raider are all from a couple of years ago. Mm. More, more recently ships have come with more of the things you need to make them good and if you want to make them perfect maybe you mix something in from a different kit but um the the, the first order toy fight is a great example of a ship that comes with everything you need to play it completely optimally hmm. so both both exist 
And I feel like I should be nice to Fantasy Flight because I was mean about the, <laughs> the, the game I didn't like. <laughs> that is the last question we've had for Miniatures Monthly this month. Oh my. What a, what a pod. Yeah. What a wow. long pod. Yeah. Took a lot of ground. So we'll be back at the end of May, maybe even with a little bit of flavor from Warhammer Fest and Coventry. Yeah, hopefully. If you would like to send us a question for a future episode of the podcast, you can do so by emailing miniatures at creatingcrowbar.com. Um, I wanted to give a shout out once again to Mike Debenham, who composed our theme music and very kindly for this week, for this month, composed a cleaned up remix. You might know if you know there, you might not notice the difference, but thank you for the additional effort because it's awesome. And so are you. Um, if it's also worth mentioning that this podcast is made possible by the Crate and Crowbar Patreon, which runs across all the things we do at Crate and Crowbar, um, spanning out from the core PC gaming podcast. More information on our Patreon is available at patreon.com forward slash Crate and Crowbar. And thanks to all of our backers who have let us do miniatures rambles Ooh. once a month. Yeah, we'll be back in four weeks. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you. <laughs> Tom, that was... Got to see that. <laughs> you, to say did it. you forget? I did, yeah.